fight and we don't have to kill everybody in the whole wide world really just needs to chill no we don't have to fuss no 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 hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of just chill with oliver george this is episode 105 and i am thrilled about the guest that i have sitting across from me he's an accomplished marine biologist and whale expert but before we take a deep dive into learning more about these giant creatures you see what I did there, I hope. Um, I wanted to just remind you, if you're watching right now, but you prefer audio only for any reason, you can get that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other places like that. But I would much prefer that you come here to the visual side of things. And either way, if you could hit the subscribe button, even if you're just listening to the audio, uh, it really does help me out a lot, and I do appreciate it. Uh, if you want to reach out to me, maybe you've got a cool guest idea or just general feedback about the program, you can hit me up on social media or you can send me an email at justchillpodcasting at gmail.com. Now, like I said off the top, the man sitting across from me, brilliant. Uh, he's back in 2005 founded the Dominica Sperm Whale Project. I almost said initiative. I was worried I was going to do that, but the Dominica Sperm Whale Project has been around for almost 20 years now. He's a National Geographic Explorer. He's a scientist in residence here at Carleton University. And from briefly meeting him a couple of years back, just a really nice guy. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I'm talking about Dr. Shane Garrow. It is Garrow or Jarrow? It is Garrow. Okay, yeah. good. I was worried about that as well. A <laughs> couple, couple of things I was uh, not too sure about with the intro here, but I'm glad it panned out. So thank you so much for coming. I, I really do appreciate this. Uh, I know you're a busy man. And I met you, strangely enough, at a, a murder mystery thing on New Year's Eve <laughs> yes. a couple of years ago. So this is a, quite the turn of events. Yes. Yeah. Through family. Yeah, well, yeah. my wife is uh, good friends with your your sister. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, it's, I didn't know actually at the time that I met you that this was your line of work. And as I learned more about you and I saw how passionate you were about this, uh, I just knew I wanted to talk to you. So thanks again for that. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Now, before we get into it, though, I want to know if there's anything you want to plug as far as your work. Like, I'm sure you want people to check out the website. Yeah, I mean, I that's a really funny question to a scientist. I feel like mm. we're trained not to do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, what's happening right now in the country in which I work, Dominica, is that they're establishing a sperm whale reserve to protect the whales. It's something that we've been working with the stakeholders there for a decade. So uh, anyone who's interested in going to Dominica, and you really should visit this amazing place, uh, should learn up on how to visit the whales appropriately under the new system. And for people who don't know, this is a Caribbean island. Yeah, sorry. Dominica is a small uh, island state in the Caribbean. It's about as far east as you can go in that sort of arc of islands. Uh, and it's beautiful. I mean, it, it, they say they call it the nature island and it has, uh, you know, 365 waterfalls, one for every day. Uh, you know, my family and I just spent a month there in May and, uh, you know, didn't run out of amazing things to do. So it looks beautiful. Everything I saw. It's incredible. I mean, it's, it's been such a huge privilege to spend a lot of time there, both for work and, and to visit as a tourist. And I was not super familiar with the country, and I felt bad because I was thinking the Dominican, and then I saw on Wikipedia, right at the top, it says not to be confused with the Dominican. So clearly I'm not the only one that's making that mistake. No, yeah, I mean, their Ministry of Tourism had a whole, like, vibe going on for a while, which was the slogan of, like, this isn't the Dominican, right? <laughs> and, uh, and even people that I've collaborated with for a number of years still often say Dominica rather than Dominica, right? Oh. And, uh, and so I think it... Oh, I did that in the intro, didn't I, with the Dominica... <laughs> oh, Dominica Sperm Whale Project. Well, it's, all, it's all good. I mean, you're not the only person making that. Mistake. I'll dub it in later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Okay, well, I mean, uh, one thing actually that I did think was cool about uh, Dominica is that they're one of only two places with purple in the flag because of their national bird. Yeah, it's a really good trivia night fact. Yeah, is the is is the bird, and uh, I think what's been amazing about the Cicero parrot is that bird. It's endemic. It's only found there. Uh, is that it's also a good example of conservation in terms of the actions they've been taking. Obviously, it's like the national animal, uh, so they have a pretty strong drive. And it wasn't so long ago, you know, when Dominica was hit by a major hurricane, which, you know, wiped out basically every braid of glass, grass and every leaf on the island. And so the, there needed to be quick response to, to protect these animals. So, yeah. Yeah. That is both a, an amazing conservation story and a great, Fact. In fact, I remember there used to be like a world trivia night at the Cattle Castle at Lansdowne in Ottawa. Okay. And you could like buy a table. It was a fundraiser. And the only round we won was because we were the only table that got that one that. country as the purple bird on the flag. Yeah. I was trying to figure out what the other country with the purple flag was. And I, I didn't take I feel time like to I should know that. <laughs> yeah, I think I've heard it in the past as well. But yeah, it, it's probably some eagle or something that has you know, flair to it. This is a very brightly purple colored. Oh yeah. It really stands out. Yeah, absolutely. And well, and I had heard that the, uh, reason that a lot of flags don't have purple is because it was, uh, like a regal expensive color back hundreds of years ago, making the color purple into fabrics and stuff was something that wasn't easy to do. I, have you ever heard that, Dan? Yeah. There's some truth to that, right? I feel like purple is regal. Like that's just a, a thing and it's probably cause of cost. I mean, Dominica gained its independence in 77. So I don't know when the flag was designed, but I think at that point we probably had the capacity for synthetic yeah, purple. Yeah, for purple. <laughs> <laughs> still, yeah, it's still another cool factoid. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Uh, another thing I thought we would mention off the top is the uh, the documentary series, The Secrets of Wales, because yeah. you played a big part in that. It's James Cameron produced and Sigourney yeah. Weaver's narrating the thing. So that's got to be a trip to be such an integral part of that. Yeah. Well, it it happened so organically. So we started working with National Geographic maybe three or four years before uh, one of the photographers from the magazine, Brian Scarry, who's featured in like is prominent in the, in the documentary said, you know, I'd like to come and we'll do an article about your work. And, uh, and so at first it was just going to be just, it was, it was only intended to be a, an article in national geographic magazine, which already for someone who studies wildlife, oh, is amazing, insane. Um, but you know, he got there and realized that this was, an amazing opportunity to film a whale that's traditionally pretty hard to access, right? I mean, I'd love to say that the Dominica Sperm Whale Project is solely driven by my acumen as a field biologist, but I think we just found the right place to follow the lives of sperm whales, right? These are normally big ocean nomads that are far from shore. You know, it's, it takes boats days to get to where they live, but this and is And often not so case. deep down as well, right? Yeah, they take a huge amount of time in the, in, in the deep water, you know? they they spend 15 minutes out of an hour at the surface, right? But um, I think in spending time with Brian on a small boat, which is where I think everyone builds strong relationships, uh, you know, I, I convinced him that the story wasn't just about the Dominica Sperm Whale Project and the little family of people that, that I had built who were studying the sperm whale families, but that there was this bigger narrative of what we've come to know is important to the whales, which is their cultures, and that, other whales have those cultures and uh, that it's a really different and important lens to think about how we want to be good stewards of the natural environment that we live on on this planet and and conserve their cultural diversity, not just, you know, 
the fact that there's 200,000 or 500,000 or 800,000 of these animals. And that that got Nat Geo really excited in that it was not just a good story about people working with whales. It was uh, something that really resonates with people. You know, I can give a talk about the importance of cultural diversity in a room where you know, a politician couldn't have that conversation, mm. right? Because I'm standing in front of a large sperm whale and saying things like, you know, learning things from your grandmother is really important and family's critical to survival and the way you live your life, how you've learned to live your life from your grandmother's grandmother is important to you. Yeah. And everyone kind of resonates with that, right? No matter how estranged or close they are with their family, who they are is so much of where they came from. This inherited knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And that that is a critical part of who they are and their life choices and where they've been. And that's true for whales too, right? Hmm. And so, you know, you can get people to say, yeah, I totally understand that. Even though if you talked about that, you know, in an increasingly polarized political world, it's a harder conversation for a politician to say, isn't it important that we think about cultural diversity in our society? Yeah. People are resistant to that. If you say that about sperm whales, everyone feels it internally about themselves and agrees. Yeah. And so... So that's part of the story. And uh, the other side of that is it gives us a really more accurate, better map on how to protect these animals. And so uh, it went from a small article about sperm whales to an article about multiple species that took more years to write and shoot for the photographer, Brian. And then it was going to be a one-hour series about all the whales. And then James Cameron came on board. You know, he's a National Geographic Explorer 2. He's one of very few people in the world who's gone to the deepest part yeah, of the ocean. Yeah, I was going to say he's an oceanophile. I don't know if that's a term yeah. or not. but <laughs> the lassophile, I think. Oh, it's is like it? The, okay. Yeah, but, uh, you know, he didn't just build a submarine to have experts bring him down. He took multiple years to learn how to pilot a solo submarine and went nearly 11 kilometers down, bringing like 4K cameras and lights and all this technology that basically hadn't been because no one had gone in like 40 or 50 years. Yeah. Right? We, human kind of did it. You know, it's not like going to Everest now where there's tourists can go to base camp and many people can go to summit. Like going to the bottom of the ocean yeah. is a non-negligible task. Not not downplaying going to the top of Everest at all. Yeah. <laughs> but there, there's no tourism for doing that, right? Yeah. And uh, and he did it alone in a submarine that he designed himself. So he's he's a legit ocean explorer. Well, he had also um, done all the stuff with the Titanic, if I remember correctly, yeah, right? So exactly. That, he's really into the ocean. Yeah. Well, in pioneering that tech, you know. Yeah. My brother, I remember we had a conversation when I was just sort of early in in university, and he's like, and I was like, you know, the problem is that everyone wants to go to space, and no one wants to go to the bottom of the ocean. Mm. And you know, my brother works in television, so he thinks about these kinds of things, and he was like, you know. The sky, the the space has a great PR agent in the moon and the stars, right? People mm. can look up. They can go, isn't that amazing? I want to go there. If you go to the coast where most of the world's people lives still, even though we're here in Ottawa, <laughs> yeah. uh, and look at it at the ocean, it kind of looks the same no matter what, even though it's dramatically changing in temperature and how much plastic it's filled with and its chemical compositions because of humans. It still kind of looks like the ocean. Yeah. And all of the beautiful and amazing life is hard to see because we can't look through the ocean, right? We're or even just the interesting topography under there and just everything you can't see from the surface, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there are bigger mountains than Everest, that go from the bottom of the ocean to nearly the surface. Wow. And there's larger canyons than, uh, you know, the Grand Canyon down there. The, you know, the longest mountain range in the world, people can't see. It's the mid-Atlantic, or the mid-ocean ridge that basically goes through the middle of the ocean all the way around the planet. That's where the, like, 
you know, here's your grade 10 science, the tectonic plates are like mashing together and make these huge mountains. And we have better maps of the moon and now parts of Mars than we do the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, it's kind of insane. Well, even our satellites have a hard time looking through the water. It's just the way all like radio waves and, and sound and light all have a hard time penetrating that, right? So, But of course, traveling to a certain depth becomes dangerous, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, you know, sperm whales are diving three times deeper than modern nuclear attack submarines, right? And so we have, there's only a handful of submarines that can go full ocean depth on the planet. I was shocked at at how much similarity just in, in the visual of a sperm whale in comparison to a sub. Like, it made me think that whoever designed the first submarine saw a sperm whale and was like, I think these guys know what they're doing. We yeah, gotta, well, it's know. all, they've, you know, we had thousands of years of engineering knowledge going into a submarine in terms of, like, hydrodynamics and how do we get through the ocean yeah. silently because yeah. it's critical for a, for a submarine. Stealth mode, yeah. And for the sperm whales, you know, they had millions of years of evolution on how to go deep. There just aren't a lot of animals that go that deep. You know, even in the ocean today, there's sort of the sperm whales, and then there's these really rare animals called beaked whales. They're actually the deepest and longest divers. So we know that they're going past three kilometers deep and they can stay over two hours long. Like, that's a long way to go on a breath. And once you get down there, there's tons of animals that just purely exist down there and never come up as well, right? Like, so many things we don't know about. and Yeah. They go there because once they're down there, there's no competition for food, Mm. right? And that's where this amazing sort of battle between sort of the giant squid and the sperm whale has been like part of literature forever, you know, yeah. the Kraken or 10,000 leagues under the sea or whatever, you know, that's, it's really this evolutionary race between sperm whales using sound to find food, right? Cause it's dark after about 300 meters, perpetual darkness, right? So they're not using their eyes for anything at that point. No, they can't see anything. Uh, Do they have uh, decent vision at higher levels or? From what we know, it's it's a bit unclear about like the array of colors that they can see, but they certainly seem to be able to, uh, and when I say they, I mean cetaceans, like all the whales, dolphins, and porpoises, because a lot of the things we know fine grain like this is known about killer whales and bottlenose dolphins, the two that are mostly kept in captivity. Yeah. But they're able to focus and look at things above and below the water. So And recognize faces and stuff, I would imagine, with trainers and stuff like that. Yeah, and certainly sound. So they've they've been shown to like imitate weird noises that they hear from like humming of their equipment in their tanks or by, you know, constant highway noise or whatever. So Hmm. uh you know, that, that's a whole other thing about their ability to learn and imitate and, and integrate sound. But, yeah, they have good vision, but when they're down there, there's not much use for it, right? Yeah. And so you have this battle between sperm whales using sound uh, and the squid's eye getting bigger and bigger and bigger using sight. And because the idea is that is as these sperm whales are crashing through sort of what's called the um, deep water scattering layer. It's like this area in the deep ocean that just has lots of tiny living things in it, including all the squid that they're down there to eat. When they crash through that, a lot of these deep water animals are bioluminescent. They can make light with their, with their body, right? Chemically in their skin or in their organs. And so when they get disturbed, uh, it, it makes this glow. Sometimes it happens on beaches or people see Yeah, I've seen some videos on Instagram and stuff like that where people are running their feet through the water and it's glowing. But down at 600, 800, 1,000 meters down, there's lots of those little organisms, right? Hmm. And so one of the thoughts is that the the squids who are famously have these giant eyes on their side of their head, right? The eyes got bigger and bigger to see this sort of bioluminescent bow wake 
of the crashing sperm whale coming through, right? Oh. But now we know that actually the sperm whale can make sounds and pick up on squid probably much farther than the squid is able to see the sperm whale, which is why they're there. They're hugely successful at eating uh, where there's no one else down there to eat other than, you know, maybe these beaked whales and these these weird elephant seals, these giant seals that make deep dives. And so they're really happy, you know? They're down there. They're feeding super well. Buffet, they basically yeah. have unlimited food. <laughs> There's a great paper of this guy that's kind of like an estimate based on a guesstimate, which is a lot of, you know, really deep ocean research from 50, 60 years ago was kind of, well, we know this tiny bit, and so we extrapolate, right? Yeah. And uh, they say that somewhere in the world, based just on what we know about sperm whale eating, so like collecting sperm whale poo and, and going through it and figuring out what they're eating, that they must be eating a giant squid. That's one of these ones that, you know, can get up the to colossal 50 squid feet, or like, yeah. you know, that, that it's the same size as my body. I heard their eyes can be the size of like a beach ball. Yeah. I mean, not, <laughs> I don't know if that's that big, but yeah, they get quite big. I mean, the one we saw, I would say the eyeball was like larger than a softball, okay. but I don't think it was on the big side of its, okay. of its possibilities. Right. So, uh, but that the sperm whale somewhere in the world's oceans is eating one of those every 43 seconds. What? And if that's true, there's just got to be so many of them. Yeah, down there. that's. And bananas. so the question is, why don't we see them? You know, when we send submarines down, or when we, uh, you know, are are looking for oil, or the, all sorts of ways we image the deep ocean, we're just not seeing them. And so I think that speaks to the fact that the way we look into the ocean is ultimately disruptive, whether with its light or sound. That the animals are just already even at a thousand meters even in the deep ocean sort of aware of the imposition of people right yeah so it's really hard to capture that yeah it's crazy it's that a part is of the crazy. world we have we know very little about and it's interesting that you were saying that anything below 300 gets really dark to the point where the whale's not even using their eyes but from what i understand the squid is is completely getting around just by seeing with its gigantic eyeball well so they yeah i mean their eye is a lot different than our some sort eye. of night vision i would imagine or yeah well they first of all it's adapted to the color of light that gets down there right mm. so the ocean is like a filter right and the light that gets all the way down deep isn't the full spectrum multicolor i mean i don't know if any if you've ever been snorkeling or scuba diving no no but no. well you should oh, yeah, <laughs> you should go to dominica bucket list and you sure. should go uh, scuba diving uh, but to people who have it's really obvious the difference between uh being at the surface and just the muted colors that you get just 10 meters down like snorkeling mm. and certainly if you take pictures of of fish and and whatever while you're scuba diving you have all of these artificial lights so that you can see the so that we can see the real colors so that are there dark blur yeah but to a fish that's what it is and so their eyes have adapted to that spectrum of light so the squid are down there and that's the same with all the animals that are making light they're making light in the colors that are most useful for them down there, right? Hmm. So, so I wonder if a squid like that were to come closer to the surface, would the light up here be too intense for them if they're so adapted to the the darkness, you know? Yeah, well, it's... it's I mean, I think that the intensity is definitely real. <laughs> There's just not that amount of, you know, when you buy your light bulbs and lumens, like if we want to talk about it that way, it's just probably too many lumens for them to deal with. I'm not sure that squid can actually close their eyes, so that's a whole other thing. Oh, brutal. But then it would be something more like, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with, like, how bees or birds see the plants differently, and so then yeah. they hone in on where the nectar is and so on. Yeah. I think it would be more like, what would they actually be seeing 
regardless if they can handle the intensity of the light. And that's where my understanding of squid vision is limited. Well, it may be one of the reasons we don't see these giant squids breaching the surface very often, right? Because they... They, they don't have to. Their yeah, body's adapted to... Like, when you're... There's this famous experiment that a lot of people can do is, is, is when they send something down deep, they put a styrofoam cup on the side. And maybe this is one of those things that you learn in science class. But when you send – so a styrofoam is just basically lots and lots of little glass, uh, foam pellets, right? And inside there's air in each one of those pellets. And that air is what keeps your food warm or cold, right? Is that, that barrier between the outside of the cup and the inside of the cup is these tiny, tiny, tiny little balls filled with air. And so when you send it down deep – that air gets compressed. And so the styrofoam cup actually shrinks by like multiple orders of magnitude. And then you bring it back up and then you have this, what used to hold like a large hot coffee is now this like tiny little thing that can barely cover one dice. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and that's because of the pressure, right? So, and that's the other reason why scuba diving is dangerous is that you're going down and you're breathing in compressed air and the, and so you're taking in more gas into your body and then as you go up, those gas bubbles in your body expand, and that gives you this disease called the bends. The bends, yeah, I was going to say. Uh, I was just going to ask that about the cups, you know. So when you come back up, why doesn't the air expand and just reinflate the cup sort of to its original size? Firstly, great question, because no one has ever asked me the follow-up <laughs> to the styrofoam cup question. And that's really astute, because I'm talking about scuba diving and how the bubbles re-expand. Right, the I, bends, right? They call that the bends? Yeah. yeah. And basically what's happening is the cup is breaking. Like those little bubbles of air aren't designed to be compressed and then re-expand. You can do it if you're scuba diving with a balloon. You can take a balloon down and, the get, and it'll get smaller and then you can go up and it'll get bigger again. Well, that's cool. But the styrofoam cup is basically just breaking. Like it's, it's not in the design parameter of, yeah. a, you know, fraction of a penny. They're not expecting cup. anyone's going to have a hot chocolate at like <laughs> 300 right. below the ocean level yet. But um, that's what the sperm whales are dealing with and the squid. So being relieved of that, and deep water biologists, including um, you know someone I, I work with now named, named David Gruber, they have to design these these tools to specially capture deep water animals because uh, there's a lot of them are very frail because they're designed in that system, right? And if you take them between pressures, their body just literally can't handle it. Right. And so, uh, you know, a change in that kind of thing, alleviating all that pressure, their body suddenly goes, you know, totally limp because they don't have all this pressure holding it together, basically. Right. Interesting. All this is so interesting. I got to say, David Gruber working in fish, if he was David Gruber. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. it would have been so much more on brand. I'm sure there's someone with a name that, that works with their animals somewhere, but I, I don't know any. Uh, so, yeah, just to, to touch back on the documentary, people can see that on Disney Plus. Right? Disney Plus, okay. Secrets of the Whales. They filmed this for series. three years. Yeah, it was a huge thing. So I mean, cool. I never actually got to meet James Cameron, which was a big bummer, mostly because COVID hit as we were ending filming. So all the post was like first year COVID. And uh, never got a launch and that kind of thing. Are you on screen or are you just... Yeah, so the sperm whales are the final episode. Nice. I have to check that out Yeah, so they're episode four. It's great. I mean, there's a lot of footage that I never... It was one of those things where I've worked with a number of different media companies over the years to to film wildlife. And a lot of them come in with the story sort of a, a priori. They're like, here's what we want. We want a sperm whale eye and then we want them sleeping. And then we want to tell the story about the baby getting milk because they're getting milk. And that's crazy. How does a sperm whale get milk? Uh, 
Yeah, I kind of want to know that now. Yeah, <laughs> well, we can talk about that in a second. That's another tangent, yeah. The, the team at Nat Geo and the production company Red Rock and, and James Cameron at the top of it all really listened to what the story was. And so the footage is a lot. There's a ton of novel footage that was collected to tell the story about how whale families learn to live their life differently, even though they're all killer whales or they're all sperm whales. They have different ways of life. Um but the narration, they really were great about talking to the scientists about what that story actually is. And that's why it felt so different, right? Is because it wasn't just this sort of ocean sizzle reel. I mean, it was. The footage is amazing. I still think it's some of the best. It is the best sperm whale footage that I've ever seen collected. Um, but the story they told was more about the whales than about trying to teach people about whales. If that's a sort yeah. of nuanced difference there. No, I see what you're saying. And I think that's why it resonated with so many people. And I mean, it eventually won the, the Emmy and everything. And it yeah. deserves all the accolades it got. I'm happy to hear that you're actually in the episodes too, because I thought you might have just been a scientific advisor sort of working behind the scenes. Well, it started with the project and expanded to actually the story of whale culture and how it, it resonates with people mm. because it's such a human trait, this sort of having an ethnicity and where I come from and who I am, but also that it has this applied conservation uh, aspect to it. You know, one of the projects that we're working on right now uh, that I lead is called the the Global Coda Dialect Project. And the idea is we're trying to map where all of these whale cultures are and sort of to give that to the, the you know, International Union for the Conservation of Nature to say, look, our maps on how we protect these whales are based on genetics, right? But just well, like humans... Human is a human is a human everywhere in the world, right? Uh, but it's our cultural differences and it's our local geographic differences that make us unique, you know? I often joke with people on whale watch boats in Dominica that if, you know, there might be 100 people on board. If you throw me overboard, I'm the only Canadian. You lose all knowledge of hockey and, like, <laughs> how to make maple syrup. And if those two things are critically important to survival... yeah then humanity as a whole has lost part of our skills to survive. And some Canadians would argue those are critical I mean, maple syrup definitely <laughs> is, right? And so... No, that's a great way to put it, though. Yeah, well, that I mean, that's, that's what we need to protect, right, is the grandmother's 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 solution of how to survive in that area. Because there may only be a few hundred sperm whales in the Eastern Caribbean clan, in, in the community that lives in the Eastern Caribbean. But you can't take sperm whales from Sri Lanka or the Azores or the Galapagos where there's lots of other sperm whales and plunk them into the Caribbean. They'll probably survive because obviously there's lots of squid there. But will that part of the ocean be as useful to them as it once was to those that lived before is probably no in the same way that... I'm sure it'd be a jarring experience to be <laughs> trying to <laughs> talk with all these people who are like, you're kind of like me, but we've got really different vibes and different ways of doing everything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In the same way that there are humans living in the Amazon, but yeah. you can't take this human and put me there. I'm going to eat the wrong plant and step in the wrong place. Yeah. And those aren't passed on by our genetics. It's not passed on just because there's a sheer number of humans on the planet. That's passed on through learning, through culture, through family lines. And that's true for whales too. And that's a totally different perspective on looking about what we're trying to protect, right? It's not good enough anymore to just save a number of X. We have to make sure that the, the, the diversity that they actually use to survive, the lessons from their grandmothers are maintained. Wow. Like already you, some of the stuff you're talking about, I'm wanting to jump ahead to some of my whale questions. Um, but I wanted to kind of start off with how you got into all this, because I read that you knew you wanted to be a marine, marine biologist since you were like seven years old. Yeah. So that is pretty impressive in itself, because I don't think a lot of seven year olds 
they might think they know what they're going to do, but it usually doesn't pan out. You know, I wanted to be a paleontologist probably at that age, and I didn't follow up on that at all. Right, yeah. Um, so when did you first get to, well, you can tell me anything along the lines of your youth leading up to that, but I was yeah. also curious when you first got to interact with any kind of marine life in a way where it felt tangible and you got even more obsessed about it, you know? Wow. Um, so, yeah, I definitely wanted to be a marine biologist when I was young, and I often credit the CBC show Danger Bay. Do you remember that? I don't. That five years between me and you might just yeah, be Yeah, I was going to say, there's certain shows that just... Uh, it was on the West Coast, and he was like a veterinarian, and he lived on an island and took a boat to work, and like half the shows were about him saving seals and from entanglement, whatever, and I just remember... It was like a fictional... Yeah, it was... Oh, okay. I mean, we... We were so into it. I remember in business class in the like after lunchtime in grade 10, my friend and I would put our earphones on from our Walkman and tune the radio to CBC just to hear the theme song and then, <laughs> then take wow. it out. Yeah. I'm surprised I've never even heard of it though. I huh. you know, it's not streaming anywhere. Was it, it short-lived or it had several seasons? In my mind it was on forever. <laughs> I cuz it was already I think when I was 12 or 13, it was already like you know, on reruns on CBC or elsewhere. I mean, it must have been on CBC only. I can't. Yeah, probably. But PBS um, or something, maybe. Maybe. If they adapted it for the, the U.S. But the idea that there were jobs that were, like, about protecting or saving animals and that you could go to work in a boat, that was so awesome. Like, regardless of the whole fact that I wanted to do be a marine biologist thing, that was... Because I don't think I saw the ocean until I was older. I mean, other than like on a beach, uh, you know, on a vacation, never like underwater and snorkeling. Um, well, yeah, being in Ottawa, I was going to say, I, <laughs> I had very little experience with being out on open water. And yeah. the idea of going to work in a boat wouldn't have appealed to me for that exact reason that, it, you know, I didn't grow up in that kind of environment. So it didn't. Yeah, maybe it being so foreign. I mean, we have the rivers here, and I loved, like, boating, like, water skiing as a kid. But oh, I don't go. think that's all the same. I, I think it was, I don't know. There was another childhood book called Paddle to the Sea okay. about this indigenous guy who who carves a canoe with a man in it and puts it in Lake Superior. And it's about this little wood canoe's voyage all the way down through the Great Lakes and through the St. Lawrence and into the ocean uh, and the fact that all of that was connected, that you could live in, you know, remote northern Ontario and yet be directly linked to the ocean thousands of kilometers away was crazy. Yeah. And that sort of made it feel like, well, Ottawa is Ottawa. Like, uh, you know, I can go do whale research wherever. Yeah. Um, and when it came to going to university, you had you kind of, you know, Guelph at this point was not the marine mammal research capital that it once was. And so we went to your choices were sort of the West Coast to study seals or orca, yeah, or or the East Coast at Dalhousie University in Halifax. In Halifax, okay. And this was uh, there was this guy named Hal Whitehead, and he sort of started doing research on sperm whales. He was the guy, you know. Whale research isn't that old of a business, you know. Hal was the first to do, you know, his PhD in whales. You know, his supervisor was trained in, you know, primates or other species. Just you know, ethology or ecology. And so, you know, there's only so many generations of people who were sort of bred as as whale researchers. Um, and he well, was I can one see of them. why. They're not the most easily accessible creatures, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the sperm whale was 
a big one, right? Because everyone knew about, we knew a lot about bottlenose dolphins, right? The, because we've kept them in captivity. The Navy has used them for years. Then there was the killer whale, you know, and Free Willy and The Navy and uses dolphins? Yeah, Navy has a dolphin. Sorry to interrupt. That just, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't just gloss over that. They're not like attack dolphins, are they? No, but they do. They did a lot of things before like high resolution imaging and, and sonar. And, and they still are used for things like... Um, like underwater mine detection and, and mm. these kinds of things, but also uh, rescue and rapid like response teams. So they I have guess, yeah, they're highly intelligent. They're so super why not smart. train them like a police dog or something along those lines? You and know? they can see through the dark ocean and, you know, they, cause they're using sound, they use echoes like, like bats do in the night. Right. So they, I remember echo the dolphin, the video game. Yes. Genesis. <laughs> so everyone knows the bottlenose dolphins. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And then it was the orcas. And then of course, you know, uh, this gentleman named Roger Payne, who discovered humpback whale song, it started the largest environmental movement of our time, Save the, Save the Whales. Yeah. You know, when you look into space, one of the farthest human things in our universe has a gold record on it, which some of that gold record is humpback whales singing, right? Crazy. So the we learned a lot about the humpback whales after, you know, sort of the early 70s uh, into the 80s about song and, you know, Dory sings a humpback whale, you know, that sort of yeah like people just know there was like new age music and so that's the humpback whales and then in the distant fourth there was this sperm whale and we basically only knew anything about it because uh, either we whaled them and we cut them apart and learned about them that way or you know really my supervisor my phd supervisor hal at, at dal in halifax he's still at dal um went on a small boat because he loved to sail in the high seas and he loved doing math. And that made for a great marine scientist, right? Yeah. Uh, and he spent huge amounts of time basically on his own private yacht with teams of graduate students learning about the sperm whales. And that appealed to me huge. This idea of like this small family of people in, in the whales world, you know, some of the work we did, we were, you know, more than 200 miles offshore, you know, no other ships are there. We're just following families of whales. This kind of family above the surface following and learning from a family below the surface was so cool. That's really cool. And that's how I got into it was I, you know. And the, I, wh the whales, I would imagine, are aware that you're following them. Yeah, I mean, I have no doubt that they can tell the boats apart just in what they're doing. But also engine sounds sound really different. Mm. You know, if you really wanted to, you could put a microphone uh, and learn the sound of each boat probably readily. And I'm sure computers could do it. No problem. Yeah. Days, AI right? or something. Yeah. So, but I don't, I'm not, I don't have an ego large enough to know, to say that they know who like, I hey, am. It's Shane. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there's no, there's no Shane. I was legitimately curious about that though. Cause I was reading a bit on about cetaceans and, and that their brains, I think they were called spindle fibers. Right. That allow them to have memories and things that uh, we would associate largely with human thinking. Yeah. So I was wondering, yeah, do they know Shane? <laughs> do they, or at least your voice if we're going off sound? Well, so I, I I mean, obviously, we're not allowed, we're not like yelling or making a lot of sound underwater. I mean, the they definitely know the boats, and they they know that the boat isn't the cool part. Like we've had experiences where, you know, we do the same thing over and over and over again, as all good scientists do, right? So the the whales are lying at the surface, resting, reoxygenating their blood, and then they make a deep dive and they lift their tail out of the water, and that sort of classic whale watch moment, you know. Uh, and we take a picture because the 
the edge of their tail has natural marks, and that's kind of like a fingerprint. That's how we uh, okay. that's how we tell who's who. They seem to get more frayed with age, though. I was noticing yeah, like, and the grandmas looked much more weathered <laughs> yes. than the moms, and subsequently the, the well, they had more cow. time to acquire the marks or get attacked by orcas or whatever it is that that causes those marks. Increasingly, you know, ropes and plastic getting in the way and stuff like that, but. Uh, and then we go to the fluke print, which is the sort of circle of calm water of where the whale just was. And we record and we collect, you know, skin and poo and be scientists. And we do that over and over and over again. And this one whale named Can Opener realized that's what we were doing. And she started to fake dives. So she would wait just below the surface until the boat would come to the fluke print. And then she'd blow it all her air and come to the boat. But importantly, she didn't just like echolocate on the hull of the boat. She would roll her eye out of the water and look at the people. Oh. And so to me, you know, that shows that she can see something new in her environment, predict what's going to happen next. You know, that kind of future planning science hasn't really shown in animals. Yeah, very know? clever. And then realize that the boat isn't the cool part, right? That the things making noise and moving around are above the water. And so I can't look at it with my sound. I have to look at it with my eyes. The whale would probably be uh, aware of the fact that the boat is not a living thing. Or would it think it's another large behemoth creature like itself? Well, I mean, we definitely have sometimes where the babies like come and hide in the boat's shadow. Oh. And I think that they're just using it as a big thing. I don't think they're thinking it's a sperm whale and they're cuddling against it or anything. Yeah, because they would hear a heartbeat or something. I would imagine they would look for triggers like that. Like, Yeah, well, and they can see with sound, right? So when they're farther away, when they echolocate, when they make a click and it hits something and it bounces back, we know that they can get a lot of information out of that. Like we think they can tell if an animal's pregnant or not. You know, it's this is in the same way that we use ultrasound to look through tissue. You know, what what are they getting from their clicks is a really outstanding question. And there's this crazy idea of something called perception entanglement, which is you can make a click over there and I can hear the echo. And so how much of that is my ability to sort of see through your eyes? You know, mm. imagine we're all sitting in this room and we could look through each other's eyes and get sort of like a like a TV edit, but in our own brain of people from different perspectives. Yeah, We don't know that they can do that, but certainly the physics of sound is there for them to do that. I would, I would think that uh, there'd be quite a difference in echolocating off of a hard substrate like a hull versus tissue, which would be more complex. Permeable, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you're going to get some of the sound coming off the surface, but with tissue, you get some sound a little later coming back off of deeper, like a bone, for instance, it mm -hmm. hits the bone. So, Yeah, that's called target strength. That's the like nerdy science term for that, and you're totally right. Uh, and we know that dolphins in captivity can tell apart things with various target strength at various distances. Um, hmm. and, uh, and, and a boat hull would be very loud, not just because of what it's made out of, but it's basically holding back an enormous bubble of air, right? And, and air bubbles are a huge uh, target strength, right? Because it changes the way the sound reflects so much. And that's why often, you know, when people are filming animals that can echolocate whether it's sperm whales or not and they're using like a big underwater housing which is basically an air bubble around your camera the whales see that as a very interesting thing not because of the swimmer necessarily but because of their you're carrying around this big bubble of air yeah. which doesn't doesn't really happen right mm. so um yeah so so just following along that sorry just since we're talking about the sound um here yeah i'm curious about uh I mean, I, I watched your your TED talk, and oh boy, you you, you played some of the clicks <laughs> yeah. that they use, and 
how those clicks carry meaning, like Morse code sort of thing, like three dots and, and that, that's a family thing. And the code is, this, right? The, the yeah. code is. Um, but I was just curious generally about sound in the ocean and its effects on these guys. I mean, they must have sensitive uh, receptors. And when you think about just all the ocean traffic, but, but more interestingly, I, I saw a thing a little while ago about some scuba divers who were hit by a ping from a submarine, a sonar ping, and it was very disruptive to them. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about to the native life and something like a sperm whales, is, are, is their environment just getting like unbearably noisy for these, these animals? Like sound pollution, yeah. Yeah, so that's a great question. Lots to unpack there. We maybe we'll earmark the what is a coda in a minute. In yeah, terms sure. Of like how they oh, talk I have to questions about yeah. codas too. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, for in terms of like how is the ocean changing? I think ocean noise is a great example of how we look at the ocean and it looks fine, but it is so intensely insonified now. You know, mm. like most of the global economy uses a ship to get from one place to another. Like, and people realize that when a boat a boat broke. The, the 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 transit between the Red Sea and and the Mediterranean and it yeah. was all hell broke clogged loose. everything up yeah. and now uh, you know unfortunately with the human conflicts forcing a lot of the ships down and around Africa rather than taking the shortcut through the Mediterranean yeah so uh, you know there's just a lot of ship noise going around you can record it at the bottom of the ocean you know whether you're four kilometers or ten kilometers down like James Cameron was you can hear humanity pretty much everywhere. And no one wants to live at a rock concert, you know? Just think about how annoying it is to, like, be like, I love this song, to yeah. the person sitting immediately next to you. And it doesn't have to be, like, a Megadeth concert. Like, any concert yeah. is loud. Um, so, yeah, the, what we call active acoustic space, the space that I can have a conversation with my family or my, my, my you know, uh, conspecifics is, is getting smaller and smaller. And the impact, the impact of that is something we don't really understand. And part of that is that we don't really understand what distances whales operate over, right? I mean, the oceans are enormous, right? I mean, if you fly Los Angeles to, uh, you know, Japan, or, you know, uh, what the world seems to be worried about is whether or not you can get from Japan to Las Vegas before the Super Bowl, if you happen to be Taylor Swift, the problem is, like, that takes 12 or 13 hours to fly across this enormous body of water. And... You know, these blue whales, which is the largest animal to ever live, ever, bigger than all of the dinosaurs, they're swimming around in the oceans making these really deep noises that if you have the right equipment, you can record across thousands of kilometers, right? So if there's a sperm whale off California, I mean a blue whale, and there's a blue whale somewhere off, you know, the Galapagos or maybe even Australia, and they can hear each other, are they together and then if they can't hear each other because of human noise anymore, what is that doing to their society, you know? In the same way that hmm. long-distance phone calls when I was a kid were expensive and crazy and crackly, and you're like, hello, Grandma. You know, and now, if it doesn't have a video feed of the face, my kids, like, don't know how to hold a phone properly, <laughs> right? Like, you ask a kid how to hold a phone, and everyone does this. Yeah. You know? Let alone and, dialing like a rotary yeah, or something, right. which we had one when I was a kid. <laughs> so this, uh, us not understanding like the scale across which is important to whales, uh, it, you know, hugely impacts our, our ability to understand how it being noisy over here, but not over there, it, you know, impacts the whales. But yeah, I think ocean noise is sort of this quiet uh, major development in, in conservation for any animal that uses sound. I was curious about that because uh, I wanted to know if 
I had seen all these cool facts, uh, one of which was that the sperm whale is apparently the loudest animal and that it's uh, coda clicks can like rupture a human eardrum. I read that. Yeah. Well, so they're not the loudest animal. And that's always a confusing one because, uh, you know, it's like one of those questions that people always wonder, like, why are ads louder than the TV show I'm watching? It's just like how sound is. And you guys probably know making a podcast how important quality of sound is and how to mix it. Yeah, we try our best. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But sperm whales aren't the loudest. They're amongst the most powerful sounds. But loud is measured by the person perceiving the sound, not the person producing the sound. Oh, I figured there could be equipment measuring that. Yeah, so there is kind of. But the way we measure the, like, source, uh, you know, pressure level, because sound is just a pressure wave moving through space or moving through water, is different because air is different than water. Mm. And it actually takes more energy to make, uh, like, a sound in air than it does in water because sound travels so well in water, right? Oh, interesting. I I thought you were going to say the opposite because anytime, you know, you're at a pool with your friends and you scream underwater like, oh, it sounds very muffled, but that's us receiving it, I suppose. Well, it's two things. One is uh, your vocal cords weren't, like, really well adapted to yelling at each other underwater, right? (laughs) Um, But, uh, and partly, yes, our ears weren't really well adapted to hearing sound underwater. Yeah. But, um, It's more how there's just more stuff in the ocean for the particles to bounce back around. We're getting way too into the physics of sound. But what the takeaway from that is uh, the way we measure sound in air and sound in water is different. And so, uh, you know, you might see a number like 185 dB. Decibels, yeah. Yeah, which is how we measure uh, the, the sound pressure level is measured against a different number than on in air. So that like you'll say, oh well a rocket launch is 185 dB. So the sperm whales are as loud as a rocket launch, but they're measured very differently. Okay. But importantly a click is very quick. It's yeah. you know and it so it doesn't carry as much energy as a rocket launch, which lasts a long, 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 long time. So they're not the loudest animal. I think now that's like some crazy frog. It it makes this amazing noise. Really? And frog. there's that's a shrimp that makes this popping noise that's very, very loud too. Um but uh, so they're not the loudest, but they're amongst the most most powerful sounds on the planet. And yeah, you know, if you have a pocket of air in your body, uh, that level of of sound can can make it pop, basically, right? And so for a long time, they thought that sperm whales were stunning their prey by debilitating them with their oh, sound, incapacitating them. And it seems clear that they're not doing that in part because most of the squid don't have what's called a swim bladder, like this pocket of air that a lot of fish do. Now, you know, orca or bottlenose dolphin, maybe they're taking advantage of that, but it's not like this massive acoustic weapon. And certainly they would hurt each other too. And they echolocate on each other and make codas towards each other all the time. So even if they can make that super powerful noise, um, you know, they can dial it down. And that's why I take a huge grain of salt around all of these, like, you know, my arm was debilitated when I was in the water with whales or, you know, Sure, it definitely feels like sitting on a bass speaker, you know, while the bass drum is just hitting at some concert. You can feel the sound on your body. Um, And that is, you know, non-negligibly scary. (laughs) You don't know to expect that, right? (laughs) But um, I think they have way too much control over uh, that ability. And so, um, you know, they're not out to injure people in the water intentionally or unintentionally. Well, I was also curious about um, when I'm learning that these noises they make, whether it's the the clicks of the codas or the whale songs, yeah. can travel thousands of kilometers and and 
hopefully be heard by another whale. I would assume that's the point. How, if I'm getting a, a whale song from 2,000 kilometers away or whatever the distance yeah. might be, how am I going to differentiate that from the other whale that's, you know, if I, I would presumably be getting all these sounds if they can travel that far. So how am I going to know as a whale which one's coming from where, you know? I yeah, guess so is. that's a really good question. That's that it's it's very species specific. Okay. So like the blue whales make these really low sounds and they go to a part of the ocean uh, that, you know, it's called the so far channel. And those low sounds basically reflect and they travel huge distances and then other blue whales can hear them, right? And I think those signals are less to do about conversational because it still takes time to travel that distance. So it's not like you're going to, the sort of, the baud rate of that communication is going to be pretty low, yeah. right? Like, hey, um, Jerry, how's your kids? You yeah, know, like. it may be more just that you are aware that Jerry is vaguely in that direction. Yeah, yeah. And that's enough for you, right? Whereas the humpback whale song, it's not carrying thousands of kilometers. It might carry dozens to like less Still than Still impressive. Kilometers. Sure. But that is the area over which that matters to you. You know, all these humpback whales, they come from all around the North Pacific and they end up in Hawaii and the males sing these songs we think both to attract females and maybe to communicate something to males. Uh, and so you only want it to be the animal sort of around that part of the island that you want to hear it, right? Yeah. All of these things are sort of finely tuned through natural selection to serve the purpose they serve. And it depends in the society they're in, you know? So humpback whales have this amazingly complicated song and it's and it's specific to the community the, that they live in, right? So the Hawaiian humpbacks sing a song, and then the, the humpbacks in New Caledonia and the South Pacific sing a different song. But what's amazing about them is they have pop culture. So that song hasn't stayed the same for hundreds of years. It lasts a few years, and then someone comes in and starts singing a different song, which gets picked up by everyone really and That's quick. everybody's jam now. And what's amazing is huh. there's this amazing biologist named Ellen Garland at this university, uh, St. Andrews in, in Scotland, and she showed that the songs sort of go as waves across the Pacific from west to east. So this song that was in Western Australia will show up in Eastern Australia, and then it'll go to the French Polynesia and move its way across the Pacific uh, as these whales sort of pick up on what's cool. And that's amazing because that's similar to like pop culture songs in humans, you know, like, you know, Justin Bieber isn't as huge as he was a decade ago, yeah. regardless of him as a human, like just the music isn't. Or sometimes uh, certain popular songs will take a few years to reach different parts of the globe and then they become popular there. You and know? They, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so that's this aspect of like uh, human culture that is replicated in whales, right? But they have this song that's unique to a, a population of whales. They all are mating in one area because that's kind of what humpbacks do. Because otherwise, most of the time, they're kind of alone swimming around feeding. I mean, they do feed in groups in the north, and it's amazing to go see them in Alaska using their bubbles to make nets around around fish, and then they all come up through the net and catch huge amounts of fish. I mean, they're amazing. But mostly their life is solitary compared to something like a killer whale, right, who has these very strong female-led matrilines uh, that live in pods. Similar to sperm whales, then. Similar, yeah. And, and, and each level of that society has a sound that marks where they come from. You know, I'm from Matriline A in, in pod A in, in, in clan whatever, right? Uh, and, that, and then on top of that, they have something called ecotypes where, you know, these killer whale families eat meat, right? Whether it's uh, seals or sea lions or... Um, Occasional human. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's too common. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Certainly not in the wild. Yeah. Uh, and then... Uh, 
Oh, the ones at SeaWorld, those those humans deserved it. <laughs> no, well, I won't I, comment I on that. I say that with a grain of salt. Yeah. I'm joking. Um, I, um, but, but it's the, horrendous what they did at some of those. So. Well, I, I mean, I think I, th I think one of the fascinating things that we learned about killer whale culture from captivity is that those cultures are very, very strong. So if you come from a meat-eating family, uh, then you're going to eat meat. And if you come from a fish-eating family, sometimes you're going to eat very specific runs of salmon. And And... When you put a mammal-eating killer whale in captivity, um, there's this amazing story of this killer whale that would that would basically store the fish it was given, and then spit them out and wait for the seagulls to come eat the fish and then eat the seagull. No way! <laughs> and so, first of all, that's smart, ingenious. Yeah. Two, that's fishing backwards. Yeah, right. Uh, Birding. And three, that's like this is nice and all, but like. I don't really like what you're serving me because yeah. I've never had this before and I feel out of place, right? And you see that in the wild too where there are some runs along the Pacific Northwest of salmon that we really like and we're overfishing them and they're going down and down and down. And the killer whale families that have traditionally probably for generations eaten those salmon are dying essentially of starvation even though there are other species of salmon around. <laughs> they're just like, oh, well, we don't eat that, right? In the same way that, you know, in some dystopian future uh, where there are only very, very religious Catholics that don't eat meat on a Friday and usually eat fish, if there's no fish, like, are you going to eat meat on Friday or are you going to keep your cultural beliefs? Hmm. And that's what's happening in, in terms of conservation of culture is, you know, they have the, their, their values and the lessons they learn from their grandmother are impacting their survival but they'll actually refrain from eating what's not their preference at a point where it's affecting their their chance of survival that's what it seems to be wow. yeah and and when we when we were looking at the sperm whales in the galapagos this uh, student now who's a professor at at uh, oregon state uh we showed this cultural turnover in the galapagos where where hal my my phd supervisor has done 40 years of research there used to be two different clans Maybe at this point we should talk about what a clan is. So Okay, sure, yeah. <laughs> so sperm whales uh, live in small families just like the killer whales do. Grandmothers, mothers, and daughter that'll live together for life, right? Uh, and the males grow up and in their teens and they'll leave and move around the oceans. And that's how the genetics get moved around. We and do they go by themselves or in groups of males? At first, they live in what we call bachelor groups, but we know very little about Party. them. Party. Yeah. <laughs> we, we think about it that way, but really it's more like... Uh, my experience in watching the males leave the families in Dominica is that they really are scared and don't want to leave. Yeah. I mean, you have to, they've gone through 15, 16 years of this hyper social life in the same way that we do. And then your dad just drops you off at university, you know, like that's terrifying for the new student. And it's probably, as I will find out in about seven years, like horrendously gut-wrenching for the family, right? Yeah. To drop your kid off and be like, okay, go be a sperm whale. Bye. Yeah. Um, and we watch them, like the families will be swimming around and the male will be like a few miles away for two or three years before actually leaving. He's just like following them, trying to be there. You know, we had this amazing opportunity that we were so grateful for this summer to see a sperm whale be born. Like we were with the I family. I saw footage of this. Yeah. It was amazing. totally crazy. I mean, just humbling. Like I was so grateful to be there. I mean, it was, it was, and they seemed like they were all propping it up and keeping it safe. There was a mass of them. Yeah. So we're trying to work on, on that now with, with all of the amazing researchers that we work with on, on how and who's taking care for the calf. But I, I bring it up in that that's a family we know really, really well, family unit A. We've known them for 
20 years almost. Uh, and they have a young male uh, named Alan who I've known since he was born and now he's 16 and he's hangs out within a few miles of his family, but he'll make sounds and no one will reply, you know, like he's, he's being ostracized out of the family. We used to think that the males grow up, testosterone kicks in and it's like an evolutionary thing of like, we need to get sexually mature males out of our group. But actually it's more that mom has a new baby and sort of regardless of the age of the young male, all of the adult females in that family, the, the, the natural line that he lives in, basically stops paying attention to him. And he sort of fades out of the group slowly over time. It's like super depressing. Yeah, I was going to say, it's kind and of a so bummer. Last March, we saw Alan and he was just like rolling around in the sargassum seaweed, kind of just hanging out by himself, making codas, and no one was replying. Like it was sad. This yeah, is an animal lonely, that, lonely existence. Right. And so what we think happens with the bachelor groups is eventually another young male... And him, and him will bump into each other. And that's and a, bu- a buddy cop movie now. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's their excuse to leave, right? Um, but so so that's what happens to the males. But the females will grow up in the family for life, right? And uh, and those families learn to speak a natal dialect of something called codas, right? And the codas um, are basically patterned series of clicks. Uh, and they might make 20, 30 different patterns. Uh, and some of those allow us... Uh, to define what we call clans, which are families of sperm whales that speak the same dialect. Because as it turns out, if you speak the same dialect, those families will spend time together. And if you don't, they won't. Do you ever have clans that are separate and have largely different codas, but will have a couple of like phrases, for lack of a better term, that That intermix? Yeah. Yeah, well, so, and the flip side of that is when a male leaves the Caribbean, grew up in the Caribbean, speaking the Caribbean dialect, and then suddenly wants to mate in the Azores or Sri Lanka, or, like, how do they figure that out? Right? Yeah. So, one, the important thing to realize is that these clans, it's not geography, right? It's not like it's, uh, you speak English over here and you speak French over there and never the two shall meet. These are overlapping in the same water. They just don't socialize if you speak the same dialect. So they're hearing other codas, uh, presumably often. It's very rare for us to see two families swim at each other, have a conversation and decide not to spend time with each other. That decision gets made over a scale that's harder for us to research, which is why some of the work we're doing now that gives us a larger reach is, is helping us in that. But um, so, uh, but that's what the global coda dialect uh, analysis was for. We brought in, you know, Dozens and dozens of research from all over the world. Um, And we collected all of their recordings. And we were just sort of saying, where do you hear all of these codas? Where can we draw on a map where the clans are, the boundaries of those dialects? Um, Both for conservation as a new map for how to protect them. But also, very selfishly, like I wanted to record a male who shows up in my project in the Caribbean and be like, oh, you're from the Azores. Even though we maybe never took a photo of you over there, right? Um, And so... uh, there are codas that we hear uh, in different oceans, uh, and whether it's like the the and the ands and the ats, like I, the very I don't know. common, yeah. But uh, you know, the only way we've gone from like the sounds to a potential function is in social identity. So there are codas that allow us to recognize individuals as long as you're looking within the family, uh, and then allow us to recognize families within the community in the Caribbean, and then codas that are unique to these clans, right? These, what are essentially cultural groups, because clans are groups of families that not only speak the same dialect, uh, you know, they have different 
diets, different habitat use, different movement patterns, uh, you know, all of these things in the same way that being Canadian isn't just about maple syrup and hockey. It's a whole bunch of other things, you know, saying I am Canadian is a shorthand for assuming a lot of all these unique features. Right. Okay. And so, uh, and so to tie that back to, to the Galapagos and, and how important these cultures are to them, uh, you know, after about 20 or 30 years of work in the Galapagos, uh, this student showed that there was this turnover where those two clans left and two new clans moved in. And it was not just that they identified like 500 new whales in that one season. It's that they were speaking different dialects at this point. Mm. And one of, the que- one of the questions is, well, why did that happen? And our thought is that, you know, with El Nino and climate change and the warming oceans, the way in which they learned to live in the Galapagos isn't appropriate anymore. That's one of the places that's most hardly hit you they know, need to find a new environment that's suited to... So rather than they, change yeah. the way in which they live, they moved and looked for a place that fits so, the way they learned I'm to starting live. to learn that whales are very stubborn creatures, it sounds like, with the <laughs> only eating specific salmon and... Well, culture's really <laughs> powerful, right? Yeah. I mean, it defines a lot of these little things that we don't think are important until you move and live as an expat somewhere or go on vacation and, and you're in a place that's very different from the way you learn to live, you realize that all of these things become harder. Mm. Finding food, what do I want to eat? What do I, you know, like, like there's one of the most amazing things that I bring up about culture uh, is when you go to like some international meeting, whether it's like a Comic-Con or a scientific organization or just watch TV and look at politicians, like do you bow or do you hug or do you handshake? And that first moment, that's where there's this sort of rub of culture, right? Yeah. And the handshake is largely won over until COVID, really. Yeah. And that, and then you it know, was a fist bump. Or, yeah, right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, culture is critical to these animals' survival, right? And, and, and the only place that we've shown a cultural turnover like that is places where, uh, you know, human groups have moved around the world. Right. So the Danes moved into Greenland. You know, Greenland is 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 independent, but part of Denmark in in some political ways. Uh, And they, you know, got there and the Inuit were like, great, here's the kayak. Uh, We eat all these seals. It's awesome. We've been here for a long, long time. And the Danish were like, no, it's cool. We're going to like farm cows and stuff. And then you were like, okay. And then eventually, mostly the Danes left or adapted to be there. And many, many people died, right? And that's how these successes of different societies is, is how conservative and strong cultures can be. It has this weird side of both being really hard to change, right? Uh, but also, culture has this huge advantage of being able to change rapidly. If you see something that works well and is a solution to how to survive in your everyday life, you can just pivot and learn it from that person. You don't have to have a baby and pass on genes and wait for mutations, yeah. right? But it, it's, it's a double-edged sword. You know, in those innovative times where we're switching to new and new things, sometimes you get stuck in this loop that actually is, you know, maladaptive and will lead you down this, this path of, well, I only eat, you know, this kind of salmon and I don't want to eat that other stuff. To the point where I'm willing to starve. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Exceptional. It, and that depends on how str- – that just shows how strong sort of the norms and the, uh, you know, um, values of, of culture probably are in animals too. You know, yeah. there's lots of things about who I am that are harder to change. And there's other things that I'm like, oh, that is – that's – I mean, just think of the word life hack, right? Yeah. That's like a that, – you know, or even online now we have a, the word called meme, which is literally the word that was invented to replace gene – 
when we're talking about culture. It's a little nugget of how to do things or how to see things that gets passed around. Yeah. Right? Rather than a gene, which is passed on through genetics, through breeding and reproduction and offspring. It's like a social gene. But now it's yeah. become this like, you know, GIF or JPEG on the internet, but it's still passed around in the same way from one person to the other through social learning, right? Uh, and and so those things can rapidly go viral or become innovative and integrate themselves into an animal's repertoire of how to live. Uh, and sometimes they're not good. They fall by the wayside, Yeah. yeah. And there's all sorts of complicated, you know, you can look at prestige and who, who do you, who should you learn from? And that's why mentor mentee relationships became a thing in human society. You know, it's, I want to learn these complicated things. Um, it's, it's interesting though, because it sounds like the grandmothers and the mothers to the daughters are so much information being passed. And then to the males, it's kind of like, figure it out. <laughs> Good luck out there, you know? Yeah. I mean, that is, that's a really cool observation. Yeah. I think, you know. They live in a matrilineal society where I think a lot of primate societies are very patriarchal. And evolutionarily, there's all sorts of reasons that that's good or bad. But um, that bond between mom and daughter in sperm whale is very, very strong. Uh, to the extent that, you know, if you have a family that has a series of sons, it becomes a problem for the family. They need a female to survive, to perpetuate the family. Yeah. Right? So... Yeah, I mean, the males have seen life happen. You know, we know now through the project in Dominica that they grow up, they learn their natal dialect, they behave as if they were an adult female in the group until they get kicked out. They're part of babysitting, they're part of calf rearing, calf defense. Um, and then, uh, you know, they've probably seen uh, multiple mating opportunities within their family, so they've seen other big males. We know that they, the young males often hang around the big males when they're there, so they're learning again by observing and seeing, like, wow, this guy's really popular. What's he do? Like, yeah. What's his... What kind of hair gel is he using? Yeah. Like, how do I learn this? <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, and to be honest, we really have no idea what makes a sexy sperm whale after all of this time. <laughs> it, it's not just size alone, you know? It's, you know... Anyhow, so they figure it out, but you're right, then they go on this ocean odyssey that's mostly alone and there's often a decade or more just based on size of how small they are when they leave compared to the big ones that are mating where they're just out there being figuring bachelors it figuring yeah. it out you know they're going to the cold waters near the pole you can find sperm whales from pole to pole right yeah i had read that, that they were in every ocean and pretty they're much everywhere. all around the globe that's fascinating like there's no uh you know danger to them in different climates if they get up in the arctic are they they can just adapt well, yeah, I guess they I mean, live they, there permanently if their clan is located there, I would imagine. Well, so the female the female units, the families, live mostly below, you know, 40 degrees north or, or 40 degrees south. So they stay mostly in the warmer or tropical waters. So there's not a lot of – well, I guess we don't think about it as having clan representation up in the Arctic or Antarctic. But, of course, the males were born in, in individual clans. We just know so little about how they interact when they're up there. And they're there feeding mostly, right? That's about – bulking up for the eventual return to the mating uh, area of the world, right? Um, mm. And they do all sorts of amazing things. You know, they've learned to, like, pick fish off the hooks of long lines. Oh, my God. You need to go check this YouTube video out um, about these fishermen were getting really frustrated that the sperm whales would show up when they're pulling these long lines. So long lining is, like, Imagine 70 kilometers with a hook every few centimeters. Like, I don't know how far apart the hooks are, but there's lots and lots and lots of hooks, and they're very long, long. And they sort of sink down, and they cover a long 
patch of the ocean. And then the ships come and they roll them back up again. And they can catch, you know, hundreds or thousands of fish on them. But they sit there. They soak for a while. And that's what catches the fish. And the sperm whales have basically, I th- we think, they've cued into the sound of the machine that turns on that goes, you know, to collect yeah. And they Dinner show time. up. Suddenly there's sperm whales all around these huge ships. And uh, there's a huge study in, in Alaska about, you know, because, of course, the fishermen view this as stealing from their fishing ground when really it's both ways. Someone's yeah. taking food from each other. The whales are like, screw you. Those are our fish. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, – but – Someone put a video camera on one of these long lines, sort of just up from one of the hooks, and the hook gets baited, and then the fish takes the bait and is on the hook. And the sperm whale comes in and does this amazing thing where it just opens its mouth and runs it sort of along the line and just pops the fish off the hook and takes the fish and leaves, which is amazing. That's really cool. Because, you know, for years, I mean, fishery entanglement, getting tied up in fishing gear is a major ocean problem. Uh, hundreds of thousands of marine mammals, dolphins, whales get entangled in fishing gear. Um, you know, I always say we're not killing whales with intent anymore. We're killing them mostly with our ignorance, you know, of where our food comes from or how it gets caught. Um, and so, you know, some of these whales have figured out how to sort of get around it by still exploiting the fishermen. Um, and that probably took some time and some social learning and saying, oh, that guy does it that way. I'm going to figure that out you know that 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 sort of meme yeah that almost goes counter to what we had talked about with the salmon where here it's it sounds like they're jumping on opportunity and adapting on the fly and kind of being like all right let's get into on these lines and jack these fish well that's really that's a great question because you know killer whales are used as this exemplar of of food culture in non-humans right that they have these very strict we eat this and not that not all animals are like that you know and, and it depends on the community, too. So bottlenose dolphins, they live up estuaries. They live in the deep ocean. They're eating all sorts of things as a species. But that community over there, you know, uses the mud flats in North Carolina. And that community over there uses the deep waters around the Azores, you know, or whatever it is. So there, the culture should give you that plasticity to learn and change. Uh, but it can also lock you in, in, you know, well, grandma's grandma did it this way. And that's how we're going to do it. Um, and that's the crazy... Yeah, it really sort is. of culture. But you're right. I mean, these males are picking up this little trait that's that's worked really well, much to the fisherman's chagrin. Yeah. Um, but so that's what the males are doing up there is they're feeding and and competing with us, you know. Um I kind of wanted to ask you um about Dominica and why is it that there's such a, a massive population of sperm whales there as opposed to an island elsewhere in the Caribbean? Is, yeah. is there some something there? ecologically that's really appealing to them? Yeah. Uh, Great question. So the answer is that there's not like a huge amount of them. It's not like it's sperm whale backs as far as the eye can see or anything, right? Oh, I thought it was like hundreds of them there. Yeah, well, so they're in the community in the Eastern Caribbean, you know, moving up and down the islands, there's hundreds of sperm whales. Okay. The family on average in the Caribbean seems to be about seven animals. So it might be four or five females and a couple of babies in a family. And on any given day, there might be one, two, and rarely three families off the coast of Dominica at any one time. So they do move up and down the island chain, right? Okay. But what we do, what we know is that there's good, because like you say, there's good sperm whale habitat up and down all the islands, right? But Dominica, they, they're there year-round is what I had read. We see so. them year-round. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the, the key there is that these families show preferences to individual islands. So there are some families that, you know, use the waters off Dominica as part of their home range 
explicitly, right? And others seem to prefer St. Lucia or Martinique or uh, Guadeloupe, which is weird. We've never seen that level of like what what a scientist would call like habitat or site fidelity uh, where they're choosing, you know, a few hundred square kilometers is like, I prefer to be here rather than anywhere else in the ocean. Yeah. Um, and if you compare that to the animals in the Galapagos, you know, the sperm, also sperm whales, uh, and Galapagos is also just a bunch of islands in the middle of the ocean. Them moving a thousand or two thousand kilometers is not unheard of. We photograph them over here. We photograph them way over here. In the Caribbean, moving two or three hundred kilometers is a very weird thing. You know, we've done surveys going up and down the islands. This amazing PhD student named Felicia, uh, and we showed that basically the animals that we see on in Dominica are like very, very, very likely to be seen off Dominica and not very likely off the other islands, which makes no sense. But what it suggests to me is that you have something like the killer whales going on, which is our grandmother's grandmother's grandmother is Dominican, not St. Lucian, not Martiniquez, right? And so that they just show these preferences to these places that they know. So tr such a sense of identity in a way, though, that really is... I get why you're so fascinated by these creatures and why you see so many parallels with humanity. Totally. I mean, one of the most powerful conversations we've had in Dominica with the government towards working on this, you know, this new sperm whale reserve that, that Dominica is implementing this year is this idea that, you know, they identify as belonging here in the same way that someone is proud to be Dominican. And, and the tourism industry uh, just a few years ago in Dominica had this slogan is, I am Dominica, are you? And that's literally what, you know, Fingers and Pinchy or any of the female sperm whales that I work with. Great names. They, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Can't open We'll talk about those in a second. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, that's what that one plus one plus three coda, that uniquely Caribbean coda is essentially asking, right? I am from Dominica. Are you? And, and that is hmm. so meaningful to people, especially awesome too. In, in a multinational region like the Caribbean, you know, people are proud to be from where they're from and to have learned from their grandmother's grandmother. I mean, that's true in like sort of more multicultural societies like Ottawa and Canada are, you know, despite everyone being Canadian, the richness and the diversity that you can find in Canada is enormous, right? Oh, yeah. And you could have beef with the uh, people from Nepean and, uh, hey, we don't <laughs> like you guys from Orleans or whatever. You know what I mean? You can find totally, that. Totally, totally. At different levels of society, different tiers of society, you'll still see that echoed. Yeah. And that's partly because human cultures can be so porous, right? I can be of a certain religion and be from a certain country and be from a certain region of that country and identify as all of those things, mm. right? But what's important is that it does seem like these animals, these whales are identifying themselves as belonging from a group of animals from a place on earth. And that is amazing. I mean, it is, it just, and it's, it's so easy to understand for people like, cause that those are things that are equally important for so us. So relatable. Yeah. So, you know, in the same way that, everyone wants to feel like they belong, whether it's nationally or ethnically or regionally, whatever it is, uh, whales want that too. And so to, to then turn to governments or, you know, nonprofits or conservation organizations and say, therefore, this is what we need to protect. It's like an obvious, like, oh, of course, yeah, you know, a killer a no whale on the West coast is not just a killer whale, right? There's Southern residents and Northern residents and the mammal eating transients and like the offshores, they're all different kinds and that makes it even easier for the humans in that area to really feel a kinship 
with those whales and be like, these are our Dominic Dominica rather whales. Yeah. Well, in the in the in their speech, in the prime minister's speech about the reserve, he sort of tongue in cheek said, you know, these these are citizens yeah. of our waters, and that's Pinchy's my homeboy. <laughs> yeah, home girl. But yeah, home girl. My bad. Yeah, yeah. I should have known that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the names the names are funny. Um, you know, I remember when I started the research in Dominica going to my very first scientific conference, you know, and all these people who were in National Geographic magazine or that I'd read their papers, like legends were suddenly real, you know, these big name scientists. And here I was wanting to give a talk about, you know, Fingers and Pinchy and Puzzle Piece and Mysterio. Now some of them have Mysterio. passed away. Is that a Spider-Man reference? Well, no, no. <laughs> Although we do have a, the family unit X all has the female characters of the uh, the X-Men. So we nice. call them the X-Women. Oh, so, sweet. you know, there's Rogue and Jean Grey. Jubilee. And and <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's awesome. Because uh, we got to X and there wasn't a lot of English words that are X. Like, yeah. you don't want, you know. So... Xylophone, and then you're, and then you're done. Basically, <laughs> yeah, that's the one that comes to everyone's mind. Yeah, but you know, even even now, using names to refer to individual animals in science is kind of a no-no. You know, that was a big fight that Jane Goodall fought. You know, with David Graybeard and her her chimpanzees. She's like, well, to me, they're individuals. They're different. I treat them individually. You know, whether I call them five seven two two or fingers. Is that like because they don't want you to get too attached on an emotional level? Where yeah, it's going to obscure feeling, your your scientific data. Yeah, the objectivity, right? Okay. And that, I, I just don't see, and I mean, obviously I'm biased because I see the importance of it, you know, but we're treating these animals as individuals in our science, right? Uh, we take into account the fact that what one whale does is likely to be somewhat different from another whale because they're two different whales. So, you know, and there's been studies now, like there's this great primate group in Africa, I think they're baboons, and they gave disease names to all their animals to prove a point. Like, no one's going to, like, anthropomorphize syphilis, you know? Like, <laughs> and, and the point was kind of a, like, screw you to the academic culture of, like, naming animals actually has a negative impact on our science. But I was very nervous about giving this talk. Um, and a relatively prominent whale biologist just said, well, you know them as individuals, don't you? Like, just so matter-of-factly. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, we do. Um, but I, I will say, Alan, when you give a human name, that, that weirds <laughs> me out a little bit. I prefer the can openers and, and those ones, but... Yeah, so that, come, that comes from apple juice. So a lot of the, a lot of the <laughs> names were... I mean, look, we never thought, you know, Fingers and Fruit Salad and, and Pinchy and Riot and Ruckus and all these names would be in National Geographic magazine. Like, we... When we started, it was genuinely a way for us to remember them. We were meeting all of these new animals. We were seeing these new flukes. You know, we were trying to keep track of who they are. Uh, and so Pinchy was, had a little sort of like Pinchy-shaped mark on, on the left, and fingers looked like she was giving you the peace sign. That makes perfect sense. In, in place, it makes perfect sense. Right? Well, especially compared to uh, trying to remember 48259, <laughs> right. and, you know, like that all gets jumbled together pretty quickly. Well, especially when you name them numerically, and so when you meet five new animals it's like four seven nine nine one four seven nine nine two exactly like, so which hard one to differentiate which? yeah yeah and uh but also when you're talking about science which i think scientists don't do enough of when you're talking to non-scientists just calling her pinchy 
gives her the benefit of all the things we attribute to being an individual. And I don't mean anthropomorphizing in like, therefore she has feelings and emotions and all these things that are hard to show in animals, but that she is unique. And if she dies, that's not replaceable, right? That she has a place in her family, that she's a mom and an aunt and a sister, uh, a name sort of imbues that individuality of being yeah. that is that takes a paragraph to tell, talk to people about. Well, but and it, it's more engaging for the non-scientific folks like myself. I w- it just kind of draws you in a little bit more. It adds a little bit of flavor and character totally. to, to everything you're trying to digest. So, so the great example of that from our project and for my career especially is, you know, whale entanglement in fishing gear is a huge issue. And it's a really big issue here in Canada and along the East Coast of the United States for a very endangered type of whale called the North Atlantic right whale. Right. And uh, there's only, you know, less than 350 of them left. Whoa. And they they swim through basically everywhere where we put fish pots and lobster pots. Right. So there's lots of rope in the water and they tend to get entangled in that rope. Right. And uh, so would that be another case of them not wanting to adapt and say, hey, we should start swimming around this way because. Well, they're very coastal, so they okay. can't really just go out to nowhere. Right. What what they eat is is along the coast. Right. And they come okay. into the Bay of Fundy and. um. Um, and so entanglement's a major issue. Um, but when it hit Dominica, it hit by entangling fingers who we've known since 2005, had a baby in 2011 named Digit. Wow, and, uh, so cute. Yeah. Right. <laughs> fingers to digit. Super great. Next one needs to be toenail. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, the, yeah, right. <laughs> fingers, unfortunately, uh, you know, didn't really have another one after Digit, but, oh, okay. um, she got entangled when she was three and she was pulling rope and it was tragic and we had just started working with national geographic and i was like we need to tell a story about digit and people started getting off the whale the cruise ships so not people who are traveling to dominica to see the whales like people who are on a cruise that might hit seven countries one of which is dominica are coming out on a whale watch and yelling from a whale watch boat to our research boat hey shane how do we help digit and that for me cemented the fact that you know, you can do science for an entire career and it's not going to resonate with people if you just talk to other scientists in journals we write for ourselves, in a language that we've created for ourselves using math and dimensions people don't care to know about. But, you know, academia, like the, the university-based science doesn't really or is only starting to really reward scientists for speaking to the people for whom it matters, right? You know, we... The Secrets of the Whales was seen by millions of people during COVID and universally loved and won all sorts of awards. It's but, great exposure. But it was talking to people who already cared about the ocean, right? You know, scientists are told, you know, not to get involved sort of as advocates or, or, or spokespeople for their science. But when you have a biodiversity crisis or when, like, we documented the, these families were losing members, that adult females were dying and the babies weren't surviving to replace them. Like those are animals that I knew and thought I would know my whole life dying year on year. Uh, the only way that's going to change is if you can talk about that science in a way that people get, right? Um, and that is why it, like, I think that I'm not a tenured professor somewhere because instead of writing papers, I spend a lot of time on podcasts or talking to people about, you know, what's going on out there. Sperm whales and the stuff we're learning about them, about their identity and what they're saying and and how we're doing that is is amazing scientifically. It answers this question that all science like to answer, which is what's going on out there in the world. 
But then once you learn what's going on out there in the world, there's a second question that scientists are sort of told to avoid, which is, well, what are we going to do about it, right? Whether it's climate change or biodiversity loss or whether or not Digit's going to die in an entanglement, like there's, there is a societal, political, economic conversation that finds a solution for that. And only part of it is the science, right? Science can tell you the number is seven. Uh, then it's a social and political and economic debate about whether seven is high or Some not. Some sort of action act. plan to follow. Right. Yeah. And if science, are, if scientists aren't a part of that conversation because we're told not to or because we're worried the media will dumb it down or get it wrong or misquote us, then those decisions are getting made in our absence, right? And so that, I think, is really something that I instill in all of my graduate students, that there's a place to be the scientist, and then there's a place to be the scientist in society, right? And That's a very good point. I think it's key. I mean, I mean, science is a human endeavor. We're doing it to learn what's going on out there in the world and then report it back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whether it's to a politician or to a school group or whatever, that's a really important part of being scientist. But that's not how we fund science, and that's not how, you know, promotions in 10 years... I mean, it's happening slowly. Carleton has a great science communication program. I super enjoy being a part of that in a very small way. But that didn't exist when I was a student, you know. I blame that on me doing lots of drama in high school that I just like communicating and... and no, I think that's fantastic. And yeah. I think you're making a lot of really good points in that, you know, you want it to be graspable by people who aren't scientists. And we're all part of the society. We all want to hopefully help with these issues. But getting it to a point where we can do stuff about it, you got to not dumb it down, but like make it accessible for... Well, you just got to be realistic. Like scientists are doing science up here and like this and and the public or government or whoever is is here. And I'm not saying that that's like they're, they're ignorant or anything. It's just that, you know, there's people doing amazing science on sea lion whiskers and what we can learn about climate from like their, you know, and there are people who are like, sea lions have whiskers? Yeah. And like you want those two people to meet. Yeah. Right. But that that second person isn't going to care about the compound specific amino acids you're finding in the wherever. They're going to care about what is a what can I do to help protect this animal that's now super cute to me because I think it has whiskers. And that And it might have a cool name. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that divides really like we need to be aware of it. Yeah. Like, sure, we do science and it's and it's very innovative and advanced and we do really cool research. Um but really, people just care about how they can help Digit. And that's great. I wanted to ask about, like, entanglement. There is no way you can sort of get in the water with the animal and try to cut it free or... Actually, being in the water with an entangled whale is really dangerous. Most okay. professional... Just their size and... Well, their size, and then you get caught in the rope, and then you're going down too, right? Mm. So most professional disentanglement is done from a small boat with, like, really highly trained people. And they have really long... Uh, apparatuses ap yeah, yeah. And, and and what happens usually is they put a buoy on the whale to slow it down and then they attach a knife onto the um, buoy and eventually the, the drag cuts the rope and then the whale is freed now Digit was miraculously freed we don't know how she was freed it wasn't a oh, that's good to hear. so three years later she pulled the rope for three years she got really emaciated and stopped diving and had to start nursing again from her mom but she survived and she's out there, which makes it this amazing story of that didn't need to happen. Like if we just had some more awareness and control over, you know, how the fishing happens or choices like at the grocery store, or being able to choose where the fish or what fish or what method it was used to catch, then people can act, right? Yeah. And uh, 
because the first part is like getting people aware that there's a problem, right? And the second is saying, well, now that we are all one us on this issue, uh, why do we have to act now, right? Um, and that's a that's a big takeaway from being a sperm whale is, you know, find bigger definitions of us. Humans are really good and COVID has really helped at just being very focused on who's my little group of us, um, where it seems like most solutions are usually found when you build a bigger definition of us, find a bigger community to act. Um, and certainly, hopefully, if we all live in a democracy still, then that's how, you know, big political or, or consequential changes get made. So the first is building that awareness of, you know, entanglement is a problem. And if Digit can be this tragic ambassador of that, then that's an amazing role that she is doing for her family through that tragedy. That she well, I'm glad there. that she was at least able to make her Oof. way out of it. But. Yeah. I mean, she's there now. She's a happy member of the group. She's, she flukes a little weird now, but you know, she's, she's as far I as I love this though, how, how embedded in all this you are. Like I can see the emotion <laughs> in your face when you're talking about how much you care about these animals, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, they're my other family. I yeah. mean, I've known these whales, like Alan is a great example. Like I watched that whale grow up from, you know, he was four meters when he was born. So he's not a little baby or anything, but you know, from a baby nursing from his mom to his teenage years, to leaving his family and, and going to university of bachelorhood. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've known some of these whales for longer than I've known my kids. You know, some years I spend more time with these whales than like with my extended family or my brother who lives on the other coast of the continent. So, yeah, I mean. So I, I imagine that when they pass away, there's like a, a genuine mourning period for you. Yeah, well, that that's what really triggered some of the science that we did because we were watching animals disappear. It wasn't just a population model of you know, X percent decrease per year. And I'm not discounting that science. It's critically important to get, you know, action uh, from governments in conservation. But we could count the animals that were dying and not showing up. And we would, we basically stopped naming babies in their first year because we knew that they probably weren't going to make it. And so, you know, the model we did was a literal survival mortality model where it was, here's the top 16 families in the Eastern Caribbean that we have, spent the most time with and here's how they're declining and by 2030 each one of those families will be down to one and uh thankfully it seems like the calf survival has taken a turn upwards the adults still aren't aren't where you'd want them to be but um but that though you're right i mean it it hurts like it was a personal tragedy those years when we were just losing animals sort of left and right well, and I had written stuff down about, you know, climate change or pollution and all these things that I, you always hear about plastic in the ocean, stuff like you were mentioning. And I thought you had said something to me that you had heard these guys speaking about how the oceans were in much better shape. Oh, just recently, uh, <clears throat> I was watching something on sharks and they were saying that, yeah, um, the sharks were doing quite well in certain areas now because there's more biodiversity and um, the things were better than they'd seen in 20 years. And I thought that kind of goes counter to everything I'd been hearing. Yeah, the state of the ocean. I was surprised when you told me that. Well, I think sharks are a great example of one of those megafauna that people really engage with and will act to protect. You know, think about how much people talk about shark fin soup, which isn't really something culturally dominant in North America, but there's this awareness of it, right? And those are the kinds of things that, that make people change. You know, the, I think the big challenge in like, conservation often is is the realization that we can't ex- 
continuously expect the animals to change, right? You need to learn from somebody for who it's the most important and then change something in what you do to make it better for them. Universally, that's probably a good human rule (laughs) to learn. (laughs) It's like, this matters deeply to you. What is the problem? And how can I change what I do day to day to make that problem less, right? So it's an awareness of the fact that whatever I do impacts others in the world uh, and that I have immediate agency to change what I do. Uh, and that's that's where things like these similarities of like your grandmother mattering to you and your grandmother mattering to a sperm whale or an awareness of of, you know, the immediate plight of sharks and movies can do a lot of that. I mean, shark water had an immediate impact. You know, blackfish had a really strong yeah. impact on how SeaWorld went about its daily life. So um, but the key is that, you know, we can't just create protected areas and expect the whales or the chimps or the giraffes or whatever, the fish to adapt, we need to realize that these issues are not of immediate importance to us, but they are of immediate importance to them. And what can we do to change? And there's not always an easy situation, the solution. Um, But that's a big one. Well, counter to that, though, I had heard you on CBC talking about how the sperm whales were carbon heroes and they were fixing some of these issues. I don't know if you could elaborate on that for people who didn't hear you. Yeah, well, so whale poo is amazing. See, I knew it had to do with poo. I, w- I was trying to explain to my dad, but <laughs> I figured I'd wait until the pro got here. Well, so it's this crazy thing about, you know, everyone knows how important the rainforests are to the planet, right? They're yeah. the lungs of, of planet Earth. Uh, you know, and every other breath you take comes from uh, a rainforest somewhere on the planet or a forest. The Canadian boreal forest is also critically important. Uh, but no one goes, okay, so where's the other breath come from? Like you've heard the like, one, every other breath comes from the Amazon. Or yeah. Whatever. But the other one is coming from the ocean, right? There's all these amazing tiny little plants in the ocean that are, uh, you know, photosynthesizing just like the trees are. And they're eating carbon dioxide and spitting out oxygen. Um, and the whales do this amazing thing that is called the whale pump. And the sperm whales are a big part of it. Because they dive so deep, they're eating all this stuff that's being locked down in the bottom, right? Uh, squid, whatever. And they're bringing it up to the surface and they're pooping at the surface. And they're basically fertilizing the surface waters for all these tiny little, uh, you know, microscopic photosynthetic uh, phytoplankton, right? This, this, these species that live in the water. And what they, those things are doing are creating little uh, carbon-based shells and bodies for themselves. And they're doing that by locking away carbon dioxide that they're getting from the uh, from the uh, from the world is, is it the phytoplankton or the zooplankton well both i mean it's it's a it, there's a knock on process right okay and so the 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 key being that creating all of these bodies is a way to lock away uh, carbon and then they die and they fall down like snow to the bottom of the ocean. In fact, we call that marine snow. You see sometimes in mm. deep water footage, there's all this stuff in the water and it's not just pollution. Some of it is just dying matter from above. Um, and so they cycle the nutrients down, eating the squids down deep, defecating at the surface, spreading the fertilizer, which creates the booms, which locks the carbon. And uh, when we know it's a pretty strong effect, right? And so, so this blue carbon thing is this new consideration, especially for small island developing states, you know, to meet their 
you know, carbon neutrality demands that that every country needs to work towards. And this is another way that that we can look at how that that works. If we keep the whale populations healthy, they're going to keep doing their thing. Well, and that's where you think about whaling, right? Where, you know, there's probably two and a half million sperm whales before we started killing them. And now there's maybe 800,000. And that's a lot, right? Like yeah. we just talked about the right whales where there's less than 350. Um, but that means that, you know, there was probably three or four times the carbon capture capacity just in that one species of sperm whales. Yeah, really. So it's not just us dumping and dumping and dumping of carbon. It's that we've taken away the capacity for the ecosystem that we work and live in uh, to respond to that, you know? Wow. So they, you know, this is where I talk about how, like, it's, 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 that's, that suddenly from human society, that seems like sperm whales are way more useful, right? Yeah. And it's just like a small bit of awareness that took many years of science to get to. And that's that gap. That's like scientists are way up here and like, we can act on all of these things we figured out. And it would benefit both the whales and human society now. And we have to make people care about it, yeah. Well, just aware. Aware, That's step yeah. one, right? It's funny. Uh, my dad, he came in with the zooplankton follow-up. Yeah. And, and I'm just feeling like a simpleton because my follow-up was going to be, what does a whale poo look like? <laughs> <laughs> like, is it like a floating log? like, Or is yeah. it like a... Oh, it is. No, no, oh, no, no, no. I mean, that's a like common... A, a spattering of just... Yes, it's very liquid. Okay. Um, Maybe this is too graphic. I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean, we call it a plume. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that's pretty... You get it gives me a visual. <laughs> yep. Um, but sperm whales are amazing because they eat so many squid and squid is mostly like pretty gelatinous flesh. Uh, but squid have beaks, like it looks like a parrot beak inside all of their tentacles. It's a cartilage or something? Uh, it's like keratin. It's like your fingernails. Oh, okay. And it doesn't get digested by the sperm whales. And they think that's the, so, so when they poop it out, we can figure out what species of squid they're eating because the beaks are all kind of unique. Hmm. And that's one way we figure it out. That's a job for the newest recruit. I, I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The poop scooper. Yeah. I mean, look, all good science looks at the poop oh, but, for you sure. know, luckily we can track the whales with sound we don't have to gauge how warm the poop is to realize how close the wolves are or whatever yeah um but um one of the things that comes up a lot in the discussion of whale poop is yeah it's not a, it's not a log it's a plume but we can learn a lot about what they're eating by by collecting it and well, uh, it's partially because the visual of a yeah. hypothetical visual of a giant whale turd. Yes. <laughs> it's like, wow, Every how big is that thing? Like a sofa? <laughs> yeah. I mean, dog poop looks a lot like human poop. So why can't whale well, poop exactly. look a lot like They're yeah. a mammal. Yeah. I was just curious more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Intro. Well, I'm going back to the codas. I, I really wanted to ask you, is it sperm whales exclusively that speak in, in or speak for lack of a better term, communicate in, um, in cl these clicks and all other whales are doing the songs or are there other species that are doing the Morse code, yeah, so to speak. Not this unique, this system is unique to sperm whales, it would seem. Um, they're this, there's this really weird, rare species uh, called pygmy sperm whales, and we don't really know what's I going on I wrote down there. that, yeah. They're just tiny ones? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're a totally different species. A lot of the names that whales have are not uh, like appropriate under new science. Indicative. Not okay. appropriate. I mean, like I saw a picture of a beach one, and it still kind of looked like a sperm whale. It's just much, yeah, vaguely, much which is why it happened, right? And yeah. why killer whales are called whales, even though they're actually the world's largest dolphin. That's what I. They were big, yeah. And so the whalers mostly uh, said, "Oh, that's a whale." Yeah. Right? When uh, you know, scientifically, the the whales, quote unquote, are the big ones with baleen that don't have teeth, like the humpback whale and the blue whale and the gray whale and those guys, right? Um, 
Yeah. So, so yes, they, they have a unique communication system, but each species has a unique communication system. So there are some other species of whales that do use clicking sounds as opposed to... Yeah. So killer whales, for example, they uh, do both what we would call whistling, like the kind yeah. of sounds. And then they make these other sounds with lots of very fast clicks called pulsed calls. I don't know if you watch Free Willy. I don't even know if the acoustics in Free Willy is accurate or not. Maybe they just use dolphin sounds. I haven't seen that since I was a kid. I don't remember, but uh, you know the pulse calls sound kind of like this. It's like, and that's actually lots and lots and lots of clicks very close together that creates that frequency change. Oh, so scientists have slowed it down and and heard. Yeah, totally. Right. Interesting. And uh, and blue whales are so low, you actually need to speed it up so that we can hear it well. It's so low frequency that, that, you know, we miss it in the same way that elephant researchers, you know, only in the last maybe 20 or maybe 30 years realize that they, they communicate infrasonically, like lower than we can hear in these like rumble noises that we just never recorded. We just heard the trumpet. And then suddenly we had these cool, yeah, the the high frequency, like, "Ah, we can hear that, right? But they actually communicate in this low frequency register. Yeah, I had no idea. So hmm. yes and no, you know, there's two forms usually. There's there's the sort of groaning whistling that's we think is made somewhat similar to us, like with, uh, you know, vocal cord like structures, and then there's clicking sounds uh, in mostly the dolphins and the ones who have teeth because they're the ones that echolocate, right? They they had the clicks to search for food uh, in the dark, and, and they're making they this them. noise with their tongue, I would imagine, or. No, so sperm whale, the sperm whale nose is this hugely adaptive sound producing machine, right? And so uh, all whales that have teeth only have one nostril. Really? And all whales that have baleen have two nostrils. And actually they have all the same bones as us, right? So imagine you're doing the front crawl, you're swimming with your face in the water. It'd be super helpful to have your nostrils on the back of your skull which is actually how whale bones are shaped. They have all the same skeletal bones as ours. It's just that their nose over millions of years has migrated to the back of their head so they can breathe from the back of their head. So they have two blowholes. But the ones that evolved the sound-producing organs, the ones that have teeth, only have one blowhole, uh, and that's because they still have two nasal passages, but one has been totally changed through natural selection to make sound. So when they breathe in, part of it goes straight down to the lungs and part of it feeds the sound producing machine. And in the sperm whales, they have this thing um, called the phonic lips and they have a sort of a balloon on either side uh, and uh, they pass air from one side of the phonic lips to the other. And it's kind of like when you pull the mouth of a balloon and it makes that sort of farty noise. Yeah. That farty noise is happening because the two sides of the balloon are clip- clapping together. Yeah. And that's how they make the clicks. And then they have these oil-filled sacks in their head, which is what the whalers were after, right? Sort of for, gallons for of oil and, and whatever else. I mean, they were critically important to pre-fossil fuel humans, right? I mean, lubricating machinery, uh, lamps, just the economy of it. Like, yeah. the, you know, you go to the Azores, which is one of the places where they stopped whaling the last, you know, in like 1987 was when they last killed a sperm whale. And basically every building has these amazing, you know, sperm whale uh, drawings or, or tile inlays because it was critical to human culture was to be a whaler, you know? So, yeah. So human culture and sperm whale culture have been intertwined well beyond just Moby Dick or, or, you know, the biblical Leviathan for a long time. But yeah, this oil acts as like sort of an acoustic lens and it sort of amplifies and directionalizes the sound. Um, and so, yeah, it's all up in their nose. And that's true for a killer whale or, or a bottomless dolphin too, just on a much smaller scale. I mean, the sperm whale males, the nose is like a third of their body length. 
And so they can make really loud uh, sounds that, that go for a long time. That's super cool. That's not what I was expecting at all. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I wonder how long it took them to figure that out as well. A couple of uh, autopsies, I mean, millennia. I yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, sperm whales have basically been sperm whales uh, for like 50 million years. So they've been swimming around, you know, quasi as we see them today. I mean, not literally, but pretty close uh, since before humans have walked upright. So their giant brain and the spindle cells you're referring to, you know, their brain's six times the size of ours. Now, you know, we have a bigger brain relative to body size, uh, but we know that they use their brain for complex thinking and, and uh, you know, it's not just, it's not just a heat machine. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and they use that to process sound. The parts, the acoustic parts of their brain, their brain looks basically like ours, but scaled up, uh, you know, is much, much more apt, obviously, because, uh, you know, we can't echolocate. Although there are some humans walking around who have sort of figured it out, it would seem some really some blind people who use sound to help them get uh, around. okay, yeah. Um wow. That's basically what the sperm whales are doing. There's so much stuff I've learned today. I can't even <laughs> I'm trying to like get a grip on my notes here. I think we've sort of jumped around a lot. Oh, you I did want to ask um this is kind of a fun one if you have a favorite whale out of oh, all. I or is mean, it too hard to choose? Don't like tell them. Picking a favorite kid. Well, <laughs> so when we first went to Dominica, we left uh, just after New Year's, uh, just after Three Kings Day, which is a religious holiday in Puerto Rico, I think it's the 5th or 6th of January. I know that because there was thousands of people gathering to yeah, celebrate. Yeah, 6th of January, not a great day anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> known for other things now. Yeah, and it may be the first Sunday after the New Year, I don't know. Um, but I just remember leaving um, uh, Puerto Rico and heading to Dominica, which if you've sailed at all in the Caribbean, you know that the winds come from the east. So going east towards Dominica was not particularly fun sailing. Uh, and I remember taking, you know, tons of seasickness medication, which I normally don't do just to be able to serve my night watch and like get to Dominica. And we got to Dominica and it was beautiful, flat, calm, like blows were everywhere, like whale spouts. Right. And I was like, wow, this is the promised land, you know? And that first month we spent 41 days with this one family. And the, I think the record before that was f 14 or something. No. So we just, I mean, it was immediate That's that these huge, families yeah. were unbelievable. Uh, and that was with uh, what, who we then called the Group of Seven, both because uh, a little Canadian art history never hurt anybody, but also because we thought it was six whales for a long time until we spent some time going through the photos. And that's where the name Mysterio comes from because uh. she was the magical seventh animal in that group. Um, and in that group, there's one large female. Um, you know, she's probably 60 or older based on what we know, um, who, who flukes, who lifts her tail really beautiful. It's like putting on a workshop every time she does it. And her name's Fingers. And uh, yeah, secretly, she's my favorite. And how long do they live? I should have asked that earlier. I'm curious. It's a pretty much a human life. Like they, I mean, they carry the baby for 15 to 18 months, which I think any mom listening is like <laughs> pretty terrified at. Yeah. But, uh, and then the baby stay with the, you know, they might nurse for five or six years. Uh, and then, uh, you know, they're sexually mature in their teens. Uh, and then they probably have their first baby in their early twenties. So it's pretty close. Is there a record for like the oldest whale ever documented or? I guess not, it's hard to tell. Not for sperm whales. So, I mean, we have a match going back to 1984. So that's the longest, like, tracked sperm whale. Um, but there's a bowhead whale, which is a black and white baleen whale that lives in the Arctic, both in Canada and Alaska and Russia. 
and there's one that's been dated past like 200 years old. Whoa. And it has some weird story to do with uh, either it was harvested as part of a sustainable like indigenous hunt. But somehow we got a piece of metal out of this whale, and it was dated as a piece of a harpoon from like 170 years old or something. That's and that's how they dated the whale. Now we have much more modern ones where you can look at the baleen and go backwards, or even their earwax, and you can date the earwax. It's crazy. When I thought I had read do crazy things. something in recent months about a shark they found that they estimated was 300 years old or something insane. Yeah, Greenland sharks. Oh, that's what yeah, it was. Yeah, some deep water shark, and yeah, it was 300 or 400 years. I Absolutely mean, nuts. Like Shakespeare was like writing a play or something and this shark was swimming around. Yeah, well, and that's key, right? And the reason for that is they live in the part of the world where we have least impacted, right? The deep ocean, other than the ocean noise that we talked about and our plastics that are everywhere, uh, you know, ultimately there's sort of still time in that we haven't just totally devastated that part of our planet, right? So, um, yeah. Yeah. And the Arctic waters as well. Because I remember listening to a podcast about uh, narwhals and they were saying how little they know about them because how hard it is to get data on them, essentially. Well, and they move around so much. Um, and they only come up to get food. <laughs> well, and to breathe. Uh, they trap animals on the ice or something like that. And then they, maybe I'm, I'm conflating that. With no, you're going else. it the other way around where the polar bears will find holes in the ice that are there. So if the whales can't, don't get out, some overwinter in these holes in the ice. Uh, and they basically are keeping the hole open by being there and breathing and, and and rubbing it, right? And the polar bears will come and take advantage of that and pull oh. the whales out and kill them. And because the next hole, the next breathable air is too far. So the whales kind of get stuck in the... In I didn't this. know about that. No, I think what I was thinking, it might have been orcas or something where they were trapping uh, like a sea lion on a little... Oh, yeah, that's and Antarctica. And at it. And, that's yeah. these type D killer whales. That's an amazing bit of culture, right? Because they have to learn from each other. They have to communicate to coordinate. Because they do this amazing thing where they they see the whale. So one will spy hop. They lift its eye out and looks at the whale on the little piece of ice, right? And then goes back underwater. And or they the presume, seal, you mean? The seal, yeah, yeah. yeah. And presumably they have some conversation like, hey, there's a good one up here. We should do, <laughs> we should do this. Dinner's on. And then they coordinate and they all line up in a line and they swim fast just below the surface. So it makes this huge wake, uh, like wave in front of them. And then they dive right before the ice and the wave basically flips the ice, puts the seal in the water and there they are to eat it. Right. Wow. Um, and so then you have to think about like sharing. So like who gets to eat it? Was it the guy who spotted it or is it the, the one elder? who actually caught it at the end or those kinds of things yeah. we don't really know, but also the coordination. And it means that there's a conversation happening. So first of all, one figured it out for the first time by accident. Like, I don't know what they were doing, like having a conversation with an orca behind them, not paying attention, and they accidentally dove under the ice too late and it flipped it over and there were seals. Yeah. Like, who knows how it started? But then they realized that they could replicate that and that it was a source of food for them uh, when the ice starts breaking up and the seals are sort of stuck on these smaller bits. But also that there has to be this conversation about coordinating. There's yeah. this amazing study that was done in captivity, to be fair, but where they taught the dolphin the idea of like doing something novel that they haven't done before, like the concept of innovation in order to get the reward. And they had taught the dolphins previously the idea of synchronization. Like you need to do the same thing at the same time. And then for the, they turned on all the underwater microphones and all the cameras. And for the first time they gave them the signal to innovate in synchrony and they did it. 
Wow. And so you, they have this recording where it's clearly like, hey, did you do the triple backflip? Okay, yeah, me neither. Okay, one, two, three, go. Like, we know that that's the content of information that needed to be shared. But we have no real way of figuring out what part of the whistle means what. Yeah, breaking it down more. And that's where, you know, this larger project that I'm working with called Project SETI, where we're setting out to try and, you know, decode what sperm whales are saying. You know, everyone's really excited about this idea of translation. But for me, it's really about this idea of listening to something long enough that you can start to understand what's important to them, right? So it's clear we've listened to sperm whales long enough to understand that who they are and where they come from is important to them, yeah. right? Because we can figure out what's going on there. They have identity. Yeah, and we've seen the context of that being used of, you know. Um, but that's, that's, that's the key is trying to learn what's important to them. And from a conservation perspective, you know, what are we going to do about it now that we know? That's so, all of this is just so fascinating. I, I wonder what time it is, because I know you had a, <laughs> this always happens when we're podcasting and we look at the clock and go, oh, shit. Uh, oh, yeah. I turn we're already at one twelve. So, oh, man, okay. Uh, yeah, time flies. Um, I'll ask you a couple. Oh, man, sure. there's so many in it's here. It's okay. Go for it. Um, okay, well, this is just one I thought would be a fun question as well. If sperm whales were off the table, what animal do you think you would be most likely oh, to study? Oh, gutting. Um, <laughs> they're still there. Don't worry. It's just a hypothetical. Yeah. <laughs> but like, is there another animal that calls to you? Maybe not quite as much, but something that you go, wow, I'd love to learn more about that species. Yeah. Well, so we cheat a lot off of the elephant folks. You know, there's these amazing studies in Africa where they've shown not that the females are just matrilineal, not that they just live in a female line, but that they're matriarchal, that there is an elder leader female and all these amazing things about, you know, uh, you know, if there's this drought, like one that hasn't happened in 50 years, and your leader is only 30 years old, she's not going to remember or have learned where to go. Yeah. Right? And this traditional knowledge, this ecological knowledge that's stored in these elephant cultures. And the fact that they can recognize, you know, like 900 or 1,000 animals, some that they haven't seen across decades. You know, because we can observe elephants... Uh, I'm not going to say more easily because I don't want to get in a fight with the elephant people, but <laughs> we can walk around and drive around on earth easier than we can to observe uh, elephants than we can in the water. You know, a lot of the questions that I think about, about who a whale is and what whale society might be like is, is often cheated off the Coles notes of the elephant researchers. And, uh, hmm. and some of those things we found in, in the sperm whale project uh, after, you know, wondering if they have because the elephants do. So elephants, I think, are probably up there. But when I... I was just going to say, yeah, in an alternate reality, there's a version of you who's a passionate pachyderm professor. Oh, that's there's some <laughs> alliteration for you. It's a good t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, that's a great answer. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on, unless my dad has any questions, I sometimes throw to him if there's something burning sure. on, on your mind. But I did want to talk to you briefly about AI yeah. and its possible future in, in learning some of these languages and learning to communicate maybe more directly with various types of animals. Yeah. And if you think that there's a real, you know, shot at that, or if it's going to reach a certain point and then plateau kind of. Yeah. I mean, I'm a part of this larger new collaboration uh, called Project SETI, and it's a group of computer scientists and cryptographers and engineers and, uh, you know, a physical acousticians it's and biologists. Cetacean Translation Initiative. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and it borrows, of course, from the original SETI project, which is the S-E-I-T, which is the search for extraterrestrial okay. intelligence. Yeah. Right? 
Um, and, it, you know, its goal is to try and sort of look at um, sperm whale communication as a language and what whales might mean when they make sound at each other, right? Um, and one of the approaches that it, it's applying is, is these sort of advanced uh, machine learning uh, AI models. Uh, and I think what, what I think is really important to take away from that is not necessarily that, you know, this will be Google Translate for whale, but AI and machine learning and neural networks, whatever sort of buzz term you want to apply to it, are really powerful pattern finders. And they yeah. find patterns that you know, scientific statistical approaches or just years of data mining and data sciencing uh, has a hard time doing. Or might have overlooked or... Totally. Yeah. And, and the step that we're at now in whale science is that it's getting easier and easier to record whales and record richer data sets that last longer. You know, when Hal started, my PhD supervisor, he was really good because he brought math uh, to marine science that was based on having lots of zeros, you know, like, well, there's numbers over here and we don't know about this and we don't know about that. So let's just do some stats. Um, whereas now we get really complete data, you know, we're putting computers on the backs of the whales with suction cups. So we're getting movement data, we're getting depth and temperature and who they're close to, who they're speaking to, you know, their 3d body movement, you know, with working with SETI, we're working towards getting their heart rate while all of this is happening. So these are much more complete data sets and way more data than any one science can, scientist can sit through and, and, and find patterns in. And when you start, um, you know, applying more data and more data streams, more different types of data, it gets harder to process. And so I think at the lowest level, these machine learning techniques are going to find patterns that we would have never found across these data streams. You know? Yeah. And the way like I try to explain algorithms. that. Natural algorithms. In whale society, they might just pick up on that. Yeah, things that trigger other things with a lag time we wouldn't have thought about. Or, you know, I try to explain it to people by, you know, one of the major problems when you're trying to learn a language is having no awareness of, of their culture, right? So if an alien comes down and puts a microphone in a, a dentist's office in Canada, they're going to think the word root canal is like critically important to English speaking society in Canada yeah. because they hear it all the time. But actually, if you just zoom out, it actually has very little usage. Or it's very specific to. <laughs> right? To yeah. the context. Yeah, yeah. And that's where with SETI, we're bringing these behavioral context, the social and, and the genetic relationships of the whales that the sperm whale project has, has built up across time and applying that to what they're saying, right? Um, and uh, using, you know, these natural language processing or topological statistics, like all these major new uh, ana analytical approaches to something totally different. And what's really exciting about it is that everyone thinks it's cool. You know, like the roboticists see how this is something that's a cool application of something that they do, maybe not every day, like it's innovative for them, but in a totally new way. And the computer scientists think are really fascinated by like, well, what does it mean to translate something that's a non-human language? Yeah. Right? Uh, and so... So it's, it's, sorry, it's exciting on like a bunch of different fronts. Yeah, but also just in their own world, it's exciting, right? It's not like, let's go help the whale guy. Yeah. Like, it's exciting in their own right. Um, you know, e even five or ten years ago, it would have been hard to get a linguist, someone who studies human languages, to talk to us about, you know, patterns and, and emergent structures in human 
languages. And here we are like two months ago putting out a paper that says, you know, sperm whales have similar structures to vowels. <laughs> like, I mean, that's crazy. That's cr yeah, right? that's... So I, I think, you know, these techniques are extremely powerful in terms of finding patterns across data. I well, don't and, and is it going to be more applicable to um, putting something back out towards the whales and sort of trying to communicate back with them? Yeah. So that's, I mean, that a lot of people ask like, well, if you're able to translate, what are you going to say? And for me, I think that that misses the point of SETI. Like SETI at its core is this listening process, this listening project, and trying to understand what the whales are saying, right? Is there, is there going to be a two-way conversation eventually down the road? I think it's kind of almost unimportant to me, right? Like I think the the project that I've run for the last 20 years and, and also in SETI, it's really about trying to understand and listen to someone who's totally different from us and trying to learn what we can learn from that before the conversation of like, well, what are we going to say back? Yeah, right. that's true. Um, it would be cool, though, if you could say, hey, look out for this or, or yeah. you know. Oh, like, totally. Warning systems is a, yeah. great, is a great one. Um, you or know, like we come in peace. Most of us, some humans are kind of dicks. <laughs> <laughs> look out for those ones, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing is, you know, in order to have a conversation, you need two willing participants, mm. right? I mean, you, uh, and in some ways, like YouTube's a great example of that. There's lots of people talking to the the void on the internet, right? And like, oh, it, we know the void all too well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I just mean that, like, so that's a big ask. You yeah. Know? First of all, like, even if we could translate and we could put out sounds that sound appropriate to a whale in the context that we're saying them, you know, Will they interact is is a whole other question. They sound curious by nature from some of the stuff you've told well, me. Well, the young ones definitely are, you know. Um, and but but the sec the second part is, uh, you know, the domain gap between whale world and how they experience the planet that we both share is very different from the human one, right? And so, you know, do they have a coda for human? Do they want? to talk to humans. Maybe the norm is don't talk to anyone outside your clan. Yeah. And so, you know, it wouldn't be that we're getting it wrong. It's just that they have a belief or a value or a norm of, uh, you know, if it's not someone, you know, you don't talk to them. So there's lots of things, you know, that's what grandma told us. Yeah. That's what grandma <laughs> told us, which we just talked about is really important yeah, to learn. Yeah. So, um, you know, someone once talked to me about how, you know, except in tragedy, it's really, really hard to see that humans have generally agreed not to kill each other. Like to learn the rule, thou shalt not kill, uh, it's internalized in people. We don't walk around the street being like, hey, Oliver, don't kill anybody today. Yeah. Have a great one. Bye. <laughs> like there's no verbal communication of that. And so uh, learning those kinds of things and trying to understand whale world, you know, like having a conversation about trees or airplanes, is that's not going to overlap yeah. with whale world. So uh, where we think there's going to be some interesting steps forward in our understanding of what whales are talking about is going to be about family life and like social identity, which we already know a little bit about, but about coordinating and feeding, like we talked about in the, in the killer whales and raising the babies. So one of the things that, um, you know, the linguist on Project SETI, his name's Gaspar Burgess, he's at, um, at UC Berkeley, um, is really excited about is listening to the babies learn to speak. Right, because we uh, learn so much about the structure of human languages. You know, you're more likely to say "dad, dad" before saying "daddy," and that's where you learn. Well, linguists could learn that the "da" and "d" are different parts yeah. of the English language, right? And so, 
that's one thing that we've been able to do well across years in Dominica is follow the lives of the babies. That's what I wanted to do when I started the project there. Well, because even in humans, it's super interesting that a baby can be born in one country and just learn a completely different language, seemingly without like a lot of effort being put in, it just sort of develops, you know, and then other side of the planet, completely different, you know? Well, your brain is primed for it. That's part of it. That's the genetic side. But, uh, you know, that's the culture. That's the, the other inheritance system. You know, you inherit the genes of a good brain that's ready to do it. And then you learn from who you're born with. Oh, it's, it's almost entirely culture. Cause if you took say a baby that was born in China, but when he was two months old, brought him to Canada, he's going to learn English. Depending on how his parents act, right? Oh, true. Yeah, like, I meant if he was taken completely from his family and yeah, plopped I'm, into I'm a, a good example. Like, I'm a first-generation Canadian. My dad was born in Hungary, came over, uh, you know, when many people from Eastern Europe came across. And uh, his older sister, my aunt, had kids who were older, my cousins, and they learned to speak Hungarian. But I didn't, in part because I was younger and we had taken so many steps away from Hungary. I mean, I went. It wasn't as necessary to know here, right? Sure. But the community that my grandmother was in, there was still lots of Hungarian being spoken. And I know the sound, like I can pick Hungarian out of a lineup, so to speak. Mm. Uh, but my kids, because most of that generation has passed away now, don't have much interaction with the Hungarian side, you know, uh, which is kind of sad in some ways, but also just the reality of, of being brought up in the culture in which you live. Um, it's all very relevant to everything we've been talking about. It's oh, cool. totally. Very yeah. Cool. And that's why, you know, one of the reasons we moved back to, to Ottawa, which is again, not beside the ocean for those of us listening from far away who yeah. may not know where Ottawa is. Uh, you gotta take a trip down the St. Lawrence if you want to get, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a little <laughs> bit of a drive. Um, we moved here because the grandmothers were here. And that was, that was something we took away from the whales. So like, that is the most pointed, like how I changed my life because of what I learned from the whales was, I mean, we implicitly know it, right. Of how important our family is. Many of us who were isolated during the lockdowns felt that very real sense. Um, but that's why we are here because the grandparents are here. And, uh, and I think the sperm whales would probably be proud of that, of that choice. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't want to keep you longer. I know you uh, you got to get going. If if you have any questions, do them now if you had anything on, on your mind. Otherwise, I'll ask the, the season five question, which is how we wrap things up here. Uh-oh. Okay. So the only thing, well, there's a couple of things rattling around my head. Some I can just look them up later, but. You know, like the, the whole way I learned about whales when I was a kid was besides Moby Dick was the ambergris and the uh, yeah. in the spermaceti is it's an organ, right? The spermaceti organ, yeah. And stuff. So I won't get into that. I'll just refresh myself on that later. But uh, I think the thing I coming away from today from this talk, I mean, so much great information. But the thing that's going to stick with me is how you talk about culture, whale culture. To me, this is a whole new way of. I don't want to call them more complex mammals, but, you know, the ones where we're wondering how smart these guys really are, uh, the fact of culture, I, I've just never heard it, it's never hit me that way before, like culture and animals. And it's a new way for, you say it resonates with humans if you can pitch it the right way or get that understanding across. And I think it opens up new avenues for people to think about the other animals we share the, the planet with. And I think that's a really great thing. So it's just something I picked out from today's talk. Yeah. Well, that's good. That means I've succeeded because that is the key message here, right? Is that what is important to them 
isn't so foreign from what is important to us. And that should be surprising given that they're, you know, 50 tons and live in the darkness of the deep ocean. They do, they are fundamentally different than us. Yeah, but, you you were like put on the planet to, to talk about whales because it's just contagious, <laughs> I swear to God. You know, I wouldn't have thought before planning this podcast, oh, whales, yeah, they're cool. But like, I wouldn't have thought that I could have a two plus hour conversation and be really just you know, enthralled in it. And I think a lot of that is, is to your credit that your passion wow, is really that's palpable. Very generous of you. you know? Thank you. Okay. Well, the season five question okay. this time around, this doesn't have to be related to whales, okay. but we're asking people, uh, if you could relive at any time you wanted, revisit a memory from your life and you don't have to say Whoa. the birth of my children or you, we can kind of sidebar those. Cause those are obvious ones. <laughs> You know, that's a good sidebar. That's yeah. Or your wedding or like, yeah. I don't, I don't want to go people with the cliche answers, but just uh, a memory that you would love to be able to re-experience it whenever you wanted to. And it can be whale related if, if that's, if you would want to see that birth again or, you know. Wow. It's kind of open-ended. Yeah, that is a hard one. I mean, I'm, what I'm thinking right now is that I'm pretty grateful for the fact that that's, that's a hard question for me to pick. There you right? go. That yeah. I've had enough. I mean, there's no wrong yeah. answer, right? Like, yeah, go with your gut, I guess. <sighs> or you could just say the birth of your kids and we can <laughs> wrap it up. <laughs> I mean, there's I mean, to keep it in whale world, there is a moment the very first time I ever did offshore work with Hal when I was a master's student. We went we were going out to this marine protected area that a lot of people don't know exists in Canada called the Sable Gully which is sort of a big underwater canyon, about a day and a half sailing from Halifax, just straight offshore. There's a tiny little island there called Sable Island that has wild horses. People are kind of Crazy. into, yeah, they're shipwrecked horses that have just been there for generations, right? That's pretty gnarly. But just offshore of that is this canyon with this endangered species of whale called the Northern Bonnelows Whale. They're one of these big deep diver beaked whales. But in order to get out there, it's not a, it's a bit of a schlub, like it's a day and a half of sailing. And so Hal has this knack of picking to go out as a storm is coming because the winds just are sort of great and you can just kind of shoot out there faster. But as a trial by fire or ocean or wave for a new marine biologist to get on this 40 foot sailboat, like it's a small sailboat. It's, you know, at least the wealthy among us can have a much larger sailboat, right? It's a 40 foot boat. There's six of us on it. It's, and we're leaving at 11.30 in the middle of the night. And um, it was pretty terrifying to just watch land vanish, you know? I can and, imagine. And being told, like, just go to sleep. <laughs> and I was like, I can't, I'm not going to sleep tonight. <laughs> and uh, and we all served a night watch because, of course, Hal can't just stand and and be awake all night. So, we every, you know, every two hours we sh switch who's sailing the boat. And luckily, the boat has a sort of self-steering, but you still have to make sure everything's going well. And so I'm standing on watch in the middle of the ocean in complete darkness, both being like, this is what I've wanted to do since I was seven. The seven-year-old self would be so proud and also terrified about my career decision. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember, you know, to tie what solved that dilemma was that one of my peers, uh, this woman named Marianne, who was also doing her master's with me, came up on deck and was sick. And sort of threw up into the bucket. And while her face was still in the bucket, she kind of said, wow, bioluminescence. 
And because there was a little bit of seawater in there, she had thrown up <laughs> and the disturbance had made it glow. That's hilarious. And to me, that, that moment with her being sick, me being terrified, and yet still being like in awe of the ocean that was around us, I was like, we're going to be okay. It's beauty still found a way to yeah. even make puke look good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. That's a great That's memory. It. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. Wow. This has been a thrill. Like I said, I knew it was going to be right at the beginning, but uh, you delivered in every way. And thank you so much for sharing your time and staying as long as you did. I really appreciate it. Amazing. I know my dad did as well. And we high five at the end. Yeah. Boom. Thanks for watching, everybody. Although I always look at this camera and say that, and you're usually on a wide shot. So I don't know. <laughs> Thanks for watching, everybody.